All right, everyone, welcome to the Grace Drives Pod with Coach Jason Pridmore, presented by Bike911.com. That's right, if you need any legal advice, go to a motorcycle rider, former racer who can help you out, Alex Asante, Bike911.com. Go visit that. That is the title. And welcome to what I'm going to call Jason Pridmore. I don't know, let's call it the Turn One Podcast because this is a big one for us. We have four people all trying to get in a word edgewise. It's like Turn One at any crazy racetrack, maybe Coda. How you doing, JP? How was Coda? How was uh, Chuck Walla over the weekend? It was good um, for the most part. Yeah, it was good. Last round of the races this week uh, at CVMA. And um, I had a little bit of an off on Wednesday, which was a bit of a bummer. So I'm I'm in small recovery mode at the moment, but I'm good. I, a little bit of an off. Go ahead. I mean, this is big news, obviously. You know, I mean, it's been since what? You were laying in the hospital in Phillip Island since you yeah, bought I've only one crashed. Up. I've only crashed twice in the last eight years, I think. I uh, put a lot of miles in it still, but... Yeah, it was. I, if I really wish I knew. Um, yeah, it was. It was the slowest high side I've ever had, and I just didn't want a high side. So I kind of, as it got to the point where I could see my outside knee, I just, I almost just sort of jumped off the inside because I didn't want it to get bigger than it already was, and I wasn't even going fast. That was the weird bit. So they had had a lot of wind, like big wind there, and a lot of dirt and dust on the track. But it was late in the day, so I can't even really look at that. And it was. I, it's been forever since I crashed. I mean, I rode at Chuckwalla for 11 years. I've never never tipped off one time. So it was a bit weird and um, just banged up my ankle a little bit and my fingertips a little bit. But yeah, it's I'm good. I'm excited about today. I'm excited about this. Yeah, it's a big one today because in this on this podcast, we're going to be talking about World Superbike. We promised you last week, but we also have World Superbike commentator Steve English, who's going to be joining us as well as uh, Jonathan Ray, man, race one winner. He's going to be here talking about that and Supercross. And I think, uh, you know, FIM World Endurance kicked off over the weekend and Steve English was involved in that. So there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff that we could talk about. Plus, we're going to preview Moto America, Road Atlanta, Moto GPs in Portugal. There's so much stuff to talk about. So, Jay, do you want to get right into it or let's what? Let's do it. Yeah, let's get into it. All right, so let's uh, let's kick things off. We're going to do Arai News a little bit differently. This this first bit is going to be introducing one of our guys here. So it's it's news presented by Arai. Yeah, we got to get the music in. You know what I mean? Because we know that. <laughs> so let's welcome in our first guest, Steve English. Steve, how are you, man? How was the big weekend of FIM World Endurance? I'm not going to lie, Greg. It was uh, tiring. I got back home and absolutely crashed. And JP... You weren't the only one that had a fall at the weekend. I actually was that tired in Heathrow Airport that I, I fell out of my chair whenever I fell asleep in the terminal. <laughs> so uh, I, I woke up on my ass from that. And uh, that was that was probably for me the, the actual highlight of the weekend. I thought that was a good indication that I clearly put in a lot of work over the course of the two days before that. Here I was texting you thinking you were there, but you were... You're calling it from England still, so you didn't really don't, get to don't, go. Don't see give the, away the secrets all the way, JP. You know? Didn't get to see the full flavor, I hear. I was. It was good though. I got like a last minute call up to go over, and yeah. I went over, worked at that, and uh, managed to to give Chuck Vallet a little bit of a, I a shout s- out. I as saw well. that. So uh, I did see that. At the time, I'm not going to lie. I wasn't aware that you had already had a crash, JP. Otherwise, you would have gotten even more sympathy from me. I'm probably going to take a beating now. Now that this is kind of out there, but yeah, I'm. I've kept it pretty on the DL, but now it's not going to be. All right. Well, now let's look, let's introduce. Our next guest, we're so happy to have again on the podcast, Jonathan Ray. Jonathan, how are you, man? I'm good. That's me. Hey, guys. Do you know that all our helmets are lined with an antimicrobial material? 
Yep, the interior liner gives the odor resistance, dirt resistance, and those antimicrobials that you love so much. It even comes in the best RI helmet on the market, the Corsair X RI Ray 5. You can stay fresher, longer, and enjoy a comfortable ride in the latest RI. Check out riamericas.com, pick what you like, then head to your local dealer for a fitment or to grab a new lid. riamericas.com Jonathan Ray, ladies and gentlemen. Absolute legend. Brilliant. What a read. How about that? That's great. Smoked it. Yeah. You did great. For all of you out there, before we started, Johnny's, Johnny's looking down and going, Greg, what is anti my? It's perfect. That was good, Johnny. You did. You done well. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I pronounced agree. it like he did as well, because I would have said anti microbiome, and mm. then it oh, yeah. wouldn't have worked, would it? Not, well, you know how <laughs> it, it is been in the fine. U.S., man. We we pronounce things in a different way sometimes, you know. So who knows? Caribbean, Caribbean. It we, nobody knows. Tomato, tomato. It's one of those things. Well, it's well, aluminum Johnny, that gets us actually over Aluminium. Here, right? That's the big one. Yeah, aluminium. Yeah. Aluminium. Yeah. aluminium. <laughs> that is a big one, yeah. Mm. Aluminium. Or Zed. Like, like Johnny, what's the name of the motorcycle that you ride? ZX-10. Yeah, it's a ZX-10 from where we're, we're from. A Z. Another, a Z. Yeah, Z. I know. I, I don't know, whatever. But anyway, speaking of the Kawasaki ZX-10, Jonathan, um, your first race weekend was, I guess, seven, eight days ago already. And what a what a ding dong of a of a race it was uh, over the weekend. And Steve, obviously, you were there commentating, and you did a really good mediocre job at that. Congratulations! Um, <laughs> solid solid mediocre job is literally solid mediocre that, job. That's the ceiling uh, for me, but, Greg. Yeah, <laughs> ceiling for you is Jason Pridmore. That's pretty low. So. <laughs> We'll give you some race results for those people that don't get to watch World Superbike, which you're dumb if you don't. Go to worldsbk.com and get yourself a subscription. It's so worth it. Uh, Jonathan, you won race number one over Batista, Razgatlioglu, Rinaldi, Locatelli, in sixth was Lukawona, uh, Vierge. Uh, that was .09 of a second. In race number two, it was Batista, Jonathan, and then Razgatlioglu. And then in race number two, uh, same kind of result there. So, Jonathan, let's jump right into it since we have you here. Let, let's talk about uh, how the season kicked off, especially race one. Really interested to, to know what went through your mind and what was just an incredible way to kick off the World Superbike season. Yeah, um, it was pretty sweet, to be honest. It's a, It was so strange. I don't know what Steve thinks, but when you're on the ground there, um, starting in Spain just feels so much different to Australia. For me, the Australia, the build-up to the race is so much more. Maybe it's because you had that long flight to get there or whatever, but it just felt like any other day and suddenly it was race day and I was like, oh, I've got to go and race. And I don't think there was any nerves there. It was fun. It was almost like being at a test and we've had a good preseason and um, the focus of us in the the off season was to improve the front end of our bike and also to, to improve tire life, um, to keep tire temperatures more consistent throughout the race and and we really did that, but I think at the sacrifice of our one lap pace. So my qualifying, whilst it was a pretty perfect lap for me, it wasn't amazing. I was third on the grid. And normally that's a really strong part of my riding is being able to do one lap or our bike at least. And um, so I knew making a, a good start, something we worked on all off season as well, because my starts were, even though they were good, the others have improved a lot and um, made an okay start, but, Straight away, I knew the race was going to be a dogfight between 
Alvaro, myself, and, and Top Rock. But in all honesty, if if you read between the lines at the the test they held the Monday Tuesday, I mean Alvaro was the guy. He was the guy with the pace uh, on a new tire on an old tire, and seemingly at will. So I knew I had my hands like. I got to roll my sleeves up and get my hands dirty. But at half distance, I actually thought this is all he's got. You know, he, he's not got this button he's going to press and disappear. So I, it just was a bit messy. I knew that I didn't want to let him lead too much onto the back straight because if he put a perfect sector four together and sector one together, he might start going away. So um, lucky for me, it took him until like Sunday to to figure out that he kept going so deep into the last corner. So all the all the space he would he would gain going down that back straight, he would just blow out the last corner, go wide, and coming onto the home straight, I'd be almost there again. So um, it was a fun race because I didn't count how many passes I did, but I passed a lot, which was fun. I, I felt in the battle as well. Um, and I had a bike that I was able to have fun with. So it was... A nice weekend. I followed up on Sunday with two seconds, which, to be fair, my plan didn't really work out. I wanted to get away with Bautista, but uh, both Rinaldi and Toprak probably understood that they were going to fight with either me or Bautista all race. And the fight ended up being between me and them guys because I lost track position. He got away. His plan was worked perfect, was to get away in the early laps. And and then I sort of settled and realized I've got to fight these guys to the end. And um, with a couple of laps to go, I was able to to win, not comfortably, but win and um, have a, a cruisy last lap because there was there's nothing like going on to, you know, exiting that T15 with a big red Ducati behind you. And you're just waiting, you know, what side it's going to pass you on. Um, so, yeah, I managed to get the job done and get out of there, like, really satisfied with the result. You know, for me, it was funny because uh, there's a lot of times, Johnny, when Greg and I are in a booth and I'm thinking what he is saying, and I don't know if that's good or bad, especially coming from his lips, but uh, Steve English, I was listening to the, to the, when you were talking about the race, and you literally said something about the front end of Johnny's bike and the improvements that Johnny just spoke of that they tried to make over the season. I think that when I was watching the race with a few people, they were talking about it was nice not seeing the Cowie get uh, so so distanced on the straightaways. But the thing that I found was your relentlessness to be able to uh, trail break off into some of the turns was a big difference from last year. Because when you came on earlier with us, Johnny, you talked about um, crashing on the front a couple times last year. Two, I think, at most, and then at Portugal as well. I, I couldn't believe not only could they not get as far away from you, but it gave you the opportunity to do more with them when you got to the turns. That was a big eye-opener for me, um, <clears throat> especially on what I believe is like turn six there, the right-hander on the infield. Yeah, seven. It was, it was incredible how much different the bike looked to me than it did last year and the feel you must have had. Yeah, I mean, six is more, or six, seven combinations, like a, a right kink into a really tight right, and for me, that was just more a combination of chassis setup and balance, not where we made the huge differences. But, I mean, I was able to put my bike on, on rails there. I could just turn in when I liked. It was so agile. But the difference we've made in the off-season is corners like corner one, where, you know, the rear would be in the air going into the corner. And suddenly, I mean, I'm using my hand here on video to show you guys, but when it would 
touched down last year, it would sort of push like the because what you don't see is the the engine brake effect we have is when the rear touches down, it's traveling at such a slower speed than the front because it's been slowing down in the air that the mechanics, the electronic engineers, they pretty much open the, the throttles to try and balance this, this kick out. My bike was always pushing it into the corner, you know, very hard to stop as soon as this touch would come down. So we've been working on firstly keeping the rear on the ground because I can stop better with two wheels on the ground. Then if it does go off the ground, this, this touch coming back is not pushing weight onto the front the problem i was having last year was when i'd be in crisis when the rear would be light all the weight was on the front and i had no more margin so a bit of a electronic change and also some new showa front forks they brought um with just i feel like better more parameter you know like bigger window to adjust there's um you know i I'm touching wood now. It's probably not real wood, this this table, but um, <laughs> I've had a pretty clean off season and um, I feel far enough from the limit. And when I watch the race on the weekend, I feel like, wow, I was riding. looks like I was riding on the limit, but I feel I'm able to play with the bike a little bit more. And I, I hope that comment doesn't bite me in the ass, but it's it's one of them that we worked really hard on in the off season because it's all we could do. You know, there was no magic fix to to magic up 20 horsepower or whatever that it was just working on the basics and polishing all areas of the bike and that's what we felt was the the biggest area of improvement i think for me too the funny part was just listening to top rack in the in park fermi afterwards talking about how he couldn't get his bike to stop the same way that you guys were able to and i thought wow what a huge advantage because he's been known for his braking so much the last you know couple years especially last year and it seems like that gap has has closed a ton now i guess my other question is when it comes to the ducati and batista um i don't know if the ducati's necessarily got a lot faster he's just a, he's smaller obviously than redding is there do you notice a difference between those two as far as the tops i know i know the yamaha last year was was faster than your bike it looked like it was a little bit more comparable at aragon but with batista on that ducati it's even it seems like it's even quicker than with when it was with redding yeah, hundred hundred percent. I don't I don't know the kilos of both them guys, but I can imagine Scott's high seventy kilos and, and Bautista must be probably just touching on sixty maybe, more or less. So you've got let's say at least twenty kilos of difference. Um and that's that's a lot, trying to accelerate that and decelerate that's a lot. But even Scott's bike last year was faster than us and the Yamaha. Um but with Bautista on the bike it's it's much different, but you know, I, I don't want to complain about this because I, I, in 19, I was stating facts that his bike was a rocket, you know, it was much faster than us. But I think what we see in Aragon was my bike was much better in other areas as well. So it's okay. The, it's not all about speed, but it certainly helps. You know, you're a racer, you know, the, the kind of moves you have to do to put a pass and turn seven. It's hard, you know, it's fucking hard work. But when you can just open the gas and pass on the exit of 15, it's not hard. You know, you can you can strategize the race much better. You can understand. You can race in a group much easier. Um, so I just think the combination with Bautista and Ducati is it's a better combination than Redding and Bautista. But, you know, is, is Alvaro better than Scott? You know, 
you never know. It's one of them. It's, I just think that bike really suits a smaller rider and it, it plays to its strength because it's a fast motorcycle. What about um, your gearbox, Jonathan? Because we had talked about that, how there were some really weird late kind of information given last year that hung you guys out a little bit. Is the gearbox situation now all sorted out with because you knew the rules going into 2022 a lot sooner than you did the year before, years before? No, it's just it's just the same basically, um, the same regs, and we have the same the same internal gearbox um, than we had last year. So, I mean, the biggest thing is the because of COVID and travel. Normally, when they would homologate a bike, the the FIM technical directors would go to the factory, understand what's happening, and and they never done that. So, it was I think a couple of weeks before round one last year, they told us that our homologation wasn't accepted as a new model and we would have to follow the the old RPM regs. So that only sucked because we spent all winter getting used to the new bike, the new engine filling. Um, we were probably cut, we were cut 500 RPM. So it's, it's like giving a kid some a bag of sweets and halfway through the bag of sweets, you know, before the movie starts, you take them off them. So it was, it was just like that. So it was just understanding how to ride around that. Um, of course, when you have less RPM, you make less speed, you make less power. Um, in longer tracks, you have to gear the bike quite long, like the, the final gearings, which makes the bike lazier in acceleration, harder to stop. But um, I certainly felt with the Yamaha in Aragon, um, accelerating off that T15 onto the back straight, that our acceleration was good. I mean, we have a lot of mechanical traction with the the ZX10, so um, <laughs> well I, could, I could sort of very nice. I could sort of get halfway down that straight with the Yamaha, and then I felt like I could pull alongside top rack on the straight, which is something I probably couldn't have done last year. But we haven't got faster, so maybe they've detuned a bit. I don't know, or maybe their gearbox was just a little bit long for Aragon. So top speed, you haven't seen a big gain. Is it is it mostly a little bit of acceleration that you're you feel a little bit uh, better with? I mean, especially keeping a tire underneath you more. Yeah, but I think that's to do with like just uh, electronic work, you know, with the mapping guys and torque maps and software, you know, some different software maps. You know, they're just relentless; they never stop. This electronics, the sky's the limit with that stuff. So. Um, you know, my guys have been working really hard with that kind of thing, traction control, being less intrusive, riding more in my hand. And, um, yeah, I feel like we've maximized all we can, really. But we definitely haven't made an improvement speed-wise. It's just polishing all the other areas. Now, earlier you mentioned the off-season, Johnny, and um, I'm just curious, how was this off-season compared to some of the ones that you've had in the past when you were on the the role of winning all these world championships? Was it different for you i mean obviously you know you're you're getting you're getting deep into your career in world superbike and motorcycle racing and motivation's a hard thing to come by for a lot of people as they get in you know later and so i was curious to find out you know how that was for you this year um you know it's like two sides to it so i was you know, obviously i was gutted not to win of course um after the the inertia of winning for six years it's a stop to a train if you like and then but then, you know, I finished the year with two wins, so I was pretty pumped on that. So I felt like I sort of had a great season anyway. 
Uh, I got beat by a good guy as well. And whilst I wasn't like super stoked for him, you know, I'm, I can respect him. He's a good guy, a good person. So I went home and you actually then, you, for, you forget, you don't have to do all the, the, not the nasty part of the job, but the, the energy sucking part of the job where you have to fly to this country to meet these sponsors. You have to fly to, you know, I remember when pre-COVID, after I won the championships, there was a proper Asia tour of Kawasaki factories and meeting sponsors and Dorna events, personal events and celebrations, you know, sometimes, I mean, I think it was the 2016 championship. I don't think I was sober for about two years. So, <laughs> or like about two months, sorry, two months. Two years, huh? <laughs> that would have been two years is a long time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a big party, eh? So, yeah, two months. So, it's a lot of Irish. I think coming home from Indonesia was perfect because we're still in the midst of a bit of COVID. Um, so, things are quiet. You know, you're at home. I've got a family, two kids that need a lot of time as well. So, uh, off season was long, you know, starting in April instead of February. I felt like it's a perfect reboot. You know, I think COVID's helped prolong my career because it's, it's had a natural break stop and enough time to be at home and get re-energized, get re-motivated and, and start again. I mean, I totally get that. I was with uh, Petrucci yesterday. You know, obviously he's racing in the U.S. and he was at a local track riding, trying to get to know it. And he said the biggest thing for him was he was just kind of burned out. He was burned out with the schedule of MotoGP and all the travel and being away from home. And and also he'd mentioned about the training part of it, you know, about how you have to stay like on a razor's edge in terms of fitness to ride a MotoGP bike. And so he was really enjoying the difference in the fact that he's going to be here, you know, from, from that perspective. And it was the reason why he didn't go to World Superbike because he looked at World Superbike and thought, hey, I love the series. Obviously, it's very competitive, but the routine feels the same. And so that's why he, he, he left. So you know, even him, he's only 31 years old. Um, let's, let's move forward. Steve English, what is our next round of World Superbike? And what, what, where are we going? What can we expect? Well, we're all fast. In terms of next the track weekend. itself. Yeah, we're all fast next weekend. And uh, that's always been one of Johnny's best tracks as well actually so it's going to be interesting to see how things go at that round because when you think back to 2019 again all that we're going to do the whole way through this season is look back to Bautista in 2019 and see the improvements that everyone else has made relevant relative to him because what was really interesting for me in Aragon was and Johnny I said this to you after the weekend that Saturday was probably about as good a win as we've ever seen from you because it was a race he had no right to win you know, you look at the moves you have to make. You talk about turn seven. It was almost like every lap you had to try something into there. And all that you were doing was basically just trying to get in everyone's way. Because that was He's the only way He was being a pain in the ass, Steve, is what he was being. He was being a exactly. pain in the ass. Exactly. And, and <laughs> that's what made it great for us to watch. Because, especially on, on, on Sunday's races, it was illustrated even more. Because Rinaldi was in the fight. And he was throwing his hands up. He was getting himself frustrated. And then he was getting annoyed with top rack as well. And suddenly Rinaldi in that Super Bowl race got an indication of if you want to win races now, this is what you're going to have to do. And even though Alvaro has managed to, to open up a bit of a gap, like you said, Johnny, if he gets a couple of clear sectors in Aragon, it's a track that's tailor-made for him, tailor-made for that bike, and you're not going to be able to bridge back to him. But once you're in the scrap with those Ducatis, you've got to do everything you can to stay in front. And I thought that's what made Aragon really special. 
Aston's a little bit different. Obviously, last time we went there, Bautista was really strong. But it looks like, whether it's the Kawa, whether it's the Yamaha, it looks like they've made that step to be a little bit closer, to be able to get in the scrap. And that's what you'd expect whenever the Ducati came out in 19. It was a brand new bike. And now they're, they're doing what you have had to do for a long time, picking away, trying to find small improvements. And now this weekend, we'll go to Aston. It could be cold, it could be warm, it could be dry, it could be wet. It's and, uh, It could be all of those things in the gap between the Super Bowl race and race two as well. So Aston's going to be great to be able to give us another indicator of what to expect. But the thing for me, going to round one, and John, you, you, you spoke there about you know the differences between this and a normal round one going to Phillip Island. And hopefully from next year, we're back to having PI as that first round. But what was different about this weekend was you didn't know what to expect. And I went to I went to Spain worried. I was worried that we were going to end up. Alvaro was going to win by fifteen seconds, like he did in twenty nineteen. Um, I came away from it saying that you know he's three points clear in the championship. I'm pretty sure, like even the the competitor in you, Johnny. Even with that, I think you would have taken three points going into that round, and then you go to your favorite track of the year, basically, and see what happens from it. But I, I think round one set up really well for the rest of the season. Yeah, no, me too. And I think um, I think you're about right. It was definitely, um, I mean, def- a Ducati track, like we say, like Ronaldo, I think he had a win there on that private bike, didn't he, a couple of years ago? Because I raced him on that Go 11 bike. And um, so obviously a strong track for them, strong track for him. But I think quite clearly it looks like Alvaro's the, the Scott Redding of last year, if you like, on that bike. Um but if you look at last year as a whole, let me, there's been tracks where the BMW was good. You know, Alex is strong. Locatelli is strong. Gerloff will be strong. Um, Honda guys are just going to get better and better. So I don't think Aragon will set the tone for the season. Um, but I do think you're going to need to be on the podium a lot this year. In all that talk of um, Asin, I quickly flipped up my iPhone and we expect 17 degrees most of the weekend. With a chance of rain on Sunday, eh? Wouldn't be <laughs> asking without some rain. <laughs> Might as well be Lamar, right, JP? Yeah, you know, it, yeah, you're right. I was thinking, Steve, even what you just said there, you know, in 2019, when the deficit was so big at the beginning of the season, you started off at Phillip Island, and then I think you went to Thailand, and then you went to Aragon. So you went to three tracks that you th- you look at, like you just said, the Ducati works so well at uh, at Aragon. I, I almost feel like, it's a bit of an advantage that you didn't start at those three tracks to start with. I think that it didn't allow Batista to go back with good feels and maybe gain a little momentum. I, I, I thought you coming out of there and second in the championship and doing what you did in race one was a, was a big step. And so looking at 19, um, I think the way the schedule worked out this year is even better, especially going to Aston for the second round. It's not really going to give, I feel like him a chance to, to kind of get that momentum right out of the, the gate. Because I would still reckon the Ducati would be pretty difficult at Phillip Island. Yeah, well, you're, I'm not, you're not sure, you know. I, yeah. I think, if I remember back to 19, my mentality, I was like, yeah, I'm beat pretty bad. I was beat pretty bad. But Aston's coming, Aston's coming. And I got beat pretty bad again. Actually, Vandermark beat me as well. I was third in one of the races. Yeah, race two. And I thought, yeah. how am I going to, how am I going to beat him, you know? And, it was after that race a bit of a shift in mentality where I actually had to think, right, it is what it is. You know, it's um, just do what I can now. Forget about thinking about winning. 
um, because you'd get beat. You think, oh, how am I going to win? You know, how am I going to win this championship now? And, and then I was like, just enjoy the thing and race by race. And then all of a sudden, the pendulum swung because when I wasn't winning, I was second. And so the the gap was never. I think the gap got to maybe sixty something points about Hareth. And but then he started to make some mistakes, you know, and um, you know he's been off the bike a little bit in the off season as well. Get even with him riding really, really good. So you just never know. I think um, coming, like we said, coming out of Aragon, three points behind is good. Of course, I'm expecting a good weekend this weekend. But if it, if I have to take a second, third, fourth, whatever it is, I need to learn from my mistakes last year. You know, if I'm if I'm in a sort of blood, sweats and tears battle, you know, it's, it's better to finish the battle than to try to be a hero for a day. You know what I mean? So um, it's really hard to do that, though, when you're when you've got the helmet on and the adrenaline's <laughs> in the like moment. going full gas. And those antimicrobials but, are working their magic. Yeah, yeah. I totally get it. <laughs> and you're all super clean and odorless in your helmet. So, <laughs> um, yeah, what, it's just, um, you know, it's hard. Like these especially, you know, the level top rack and Yamaha and I have like really done a good job. I think they've, because before that it was Kawasaki and Ducati every week. Um, in the previous years, myself, my teammate, Tom, or with Chaz Davis and then Bautista, but now Yamaha in the last couple of years have really stepped up. Um, I think since probably that bike started getting good when Alex was on it, would you say Steve in the final year? He finished third in the championship that year, and I think he stepped off a really good horse, you know. And um, since then, it's, they've done a really good job as a team, just um, being established as a top three manufacturer now. Yeah, I think if you look back to eighteen, was really when they made that big step, and that was when they decided that having a bike that had all that corner speed and generated all of its lap time from that just was pointless because they were always in the middle of a pack. And I remember that winter. I think Pity was Lowe's crew chief back then. And the two of them just said, right, this is what we're focusing on. We're focusing on corner entry. We're going to make an improvement. And then we saw with, with Mikey getting on the bike as well, that suddenly they could really take advantage of that. And I remember Mikey did the double at Donington and suddenly the momentum started to build for Yamaha. Mikey finished third that year, Alex the next year, Toprak jumps on the bike then. And it's just been building all the way through. And, and I think that's what's, possible in, in in superbike racing it's not like a MotoGP where you just throw a new prototype at whatever the problem is you'll just build something put it on the bike and you magic a solution out of nowhere like Ducati can come in year on year find more horsepower you can't do that in world superbikes you've got to just go with what you've got from a production bike so you have to build progressively and Yamaha have shown everyone that's what you can do and interestingly for me that's what we're starting to see from Kawasaki now as well because I think it's pretty clear anyone that's watched the championship for the last 10 years knows that there's been times when the Kawasaki has been the best bike on the grid. It's not anymore. So they're having to find ways to try and fine tune that bike. And, you know, Johnny's already mentioned about the front suspension that has changed for this year. You look at the crashes that we saw in the races last year, they were always on the front end. So they needed to find something to help the rider with that. They've done that. They needed to find a way to use the, the softer tyre a little bit better. So they're, they're trying... I remember going to one of the tests this winter and I think he's had three or four swing arms to try, Johnny. So you were trying to find different solutions all the way through. And it's in small areas to find small improvements. But if you have enough of those small areas, suddenly you can make a big step. That's what 
Cow are trying to do now. It's what we're going to see Honda and BMW do over the next few years as well. The championship never stands still, but it's pretty clear that right now, as we are, like Johnny mentioned about the top speed advantage of the Ducati, like no rider's going to want to give up that advantage. Everyone wants to have that because it's free lap time. Everyone else needs to find a way to fight that. I think that where we are now, the championship's in much better health than it's ever been. And I went into I went into last year excited. I went into this year excited. And I think that everyone's finding a way to, to have tracks that are going to be really good for their bikes and then try and minimise the losses on the tracks that aren't bad or aren't as good for them. And I think that's where it's going to be interesting all the way through this year. And when you when you look at it, that, you know, each of the manufacturers has a really top-line lead rider. And then when you look at their second riders, they're all top-tier riders as well that in their own right feel they can win races, challenge for championships. Like if you look at... With Yamaha, you've got Locatelli is their second rider. He's a world champion. You look at Ducati, they've got Rinaldi, who's worked his way up all the way through the ranks. Stock 600, stock 1000, always had all these odds against him. He's a race winner, so he, he feels he can get that job done as well. And then at Kawasaki, you've got Lowe's as well, who's a British champion. He's won world superbike races. It's great whenever you've got you know two riders that are all able to, to challenge each other as well. So I, I think right now, everyone's got that chance. Yeah, I, I reckon I've got the fastest team, mate. I reckon we, we, me and Alex would definitely shoe in for the the team's champion, I reckon, this year. Come on, Alex. If you're listening, let's do this. You've no, got a good chance to show that at like Suzuka as well this year, Johnny. Yeah, there's no way he's me. listening to this podcast. It's a golf Johnny, course take thing. Us in, yeah, Johnny, take us inside the pit box really quickly uh, with this race coming up. So you and your crew having a conversation. What is What is it that you're expecting from this weekend? Uh, without giving up any obviously big strategies, but what's the anticipation? So we'll we'll roll into the weekend because our bike's quite different from previous years. We'll roll in with the base setup um, that we've established in the off season. Um, then, you know, the biggest thing this year, guys, is Pirelli have changed the tire allocation. There's three basic tires. They've stopped bringing all these prototypes. The basic tires are SCQ, which is a the super qualifying tire but we've seen guys like bautista in the test put 10 laps on it so it's a, always a question mark whether that will do the short race or not you know someone like him might even run it in a long race that's in the summer when it, it heats up so if you put in your brain soft tires for high temperatures then we've got the scx tire which is a softer version race tire generally between three to five tenths faster than the sc0 harder compound now, in the cool conditions, SC0 is the best. You know, it doesn't cold tear. It's got longevity, but it seems like only the ZX10RR is the bike that can make that tire work. So, for me, it's good if it's cold, like really cold. Um, but now that we've been able to make this SCX work and uh, hang in there in cooler conditions as well. So, the biggest thing this weekend I'll be talking to Perry about is which tire it is. Also, what the championship and FIM and Pirelli have done. I think due to sustainability, they've they've um, cut the tire allocation from, I think, eleven rears to ten. So you have to be a little bit clever with um, with your strategy in the weekend using tires. You know, sometimes you have to use a less preferred front tire or rear tire, and doing more laps. I think was free practice three. I sat in the box for a little bit. You know, just because it was pointless wasting tire and lap time. Then paying attention to the weather, but Assen's one of them where 
you need to you can't fight with us and you have a you have to have a bike that just works and um so if it's not working out you need to understand why and small small changes to the bike can have a dramatic influence on lap time so just spend time with perry and the guys trust the process and we should be all right you were using a different Peak front tire just, oh sorry g-dub i was just gonna say just for clarification yeah. for the people in the united states what johnny is saying is s as in sally c as in charlie x the accent to both of these guys that are guests it sounds like they're saying sex it's not it's c sex S-E-X. It sounds like you guys say well, S-E-X. Yeah, there's been, there's been numerous the complaints made about that uh, over the, <laughs> the course S-E-X of tire. my time working on the Yeah, S-E-X would be nice too. Yeah. <laughs> I know you use Sorry, a different. Jay. You were using a different front tire than the boys. Uh, I know in race one, I watched a little piece on World Superbike and you were using a little bit more of a, were you using a harder compound front than the other boys? Yeah, no, I think, so last year, for example, we had the, uh, an SC1, which is like the softest carcass tire. Um, then I, I don't even know the code. It wasn't an SC something. It was a six, seven something. And then we have an SC2, which is a super hard. Now, in the past, I used to always use the hardest fronts. This off season, I've started using softer fronts, but that race, I think the best choice was my choice because even in Park Fermi, I seen the Yamaha chewed up its front a little bit. The Ducati was struggling with the front. So, you know, maybe I could have used their front. Um, but I do think Aragon, there's a lot of trail braking and um, you need the tyre to be good on lap one, but you also need it to be good on lap 18. So, um, for me, the our bike's quite strong in the front, of, you know, in the head pipe area, the chassis. So, we put a lot of stress to the front. So if we can, if a harder carcass tire can help us a little bit to to turn, we can generate turning with it, but we can also um, stop a little bit better. Just so you know as well, guys, basically with the Pirelli, like Johnny said, they bring out a development all the way through. And, and the 674, I think, was the one you used at the last round, Johnny. Six, and that's seven, the four, one yeah. that they brought in a couple of years ago. And basically with Pirelli, they try and, like we, we get a, a, a sheet with all the codes for for what all the tires are and once they're still you still hear riders saying that they're using a numbered tire by and large that's still a tire that's not available to buy and then eventually it filters its way into the production line and everyone's able to buy it to use their track day tire most more often than not you tend to see where there's pretty much everyone using similar tires out there but the cow tends to be out there with a slightly different one and the 674 johnny's usually the one just to give that little bit more stability for you on the entry as well, isn't it? Yeah, and also tire life. You know, um, it's strange because on the rear of the bike, the hotter the temperature, the softer you go, and the front of the bike, the hotter the temperature, the harder you go. It's uh, it's strange, but they've actually um, they've banded the tires like they do in MotoGP now, so the SCQ is purple. It's got a purple sticker on. Um, the SCX, SCX is red, <laughs> and the SC0 is white. So it's really cool as a rider because you know that you've done a really good session. When you come in, generally there's a guy from, if you've done a good session, there'll generally be a guy from Yamaha there, a guy from Ducati there at your box, you know, to check what color tire you're running in on. 
and then they'll check that off the chronos to see how many laps you've done so um yeah it's, there's no getting away from what tire people use <laughs> now because it's so evident with these big bands on i i actually love it on the grid though whenever you're getting ready for the race and you're trying to understand like johnny said if, if you're on that point with the temperature where it's a decision between the zero or the x you go you, you see the, the the footage from the grid obviously like i'm not down on the grid anymore like i used to do for some of the grid interviews but you'd see someone from kawasaki looking across at top rack's bike yeah. someone from top rack's team looking across at the cow and now you've got your caddy in the mix as well so you've got everyone trying to figure it out and realistically i've literally got paul denning on my left shoulder all the time <laughs> check paul denning it on in Aston. he'll be on my left shoulder <laughs> and he's got his little headset on he'll be like right SCX Paul's <laughs> <laughs> a beaut I thought, I thought Indonesia was actually the best example of that because we, we had no idea what the track was going to be like and I remember like there's the, the top rack documentary that World SBK did and uh, we saw everyone go to the grid and it looked absolutely drenched and you're thinking oh well everyone's going to have to go out on, on you know a wet tyre of some sort what are they going to be out on and then suddenly everyone gets their tire blankets off and they're all out in slicks. And then you're thinking, oh, shit, I wasn't <laughs> expecting that. And it's that thing all the way through, through the grid for everyone as well. And uh, that's, where, that's where I think, especially with the variety we have in Superbikes, it makes it even more interesting. And that's where in the 10-lap Superpole race, you know, like Johnny was saying about the, the purple-banded Q tire, and um, that's where it's going to be really interesting to see who's able to get away with that at different rounds this year. Yeah. All right, well, Jonathan... Good luck this weekend, but before we let you roll out, we've got to talk about RM Supercross Fantasy because, JP, do you have plans to go to Europe before this whole... I mean, because the winner of this this league is supposed to get... I'm going. A, a, a custom... A, it's a, it's an Arai hat. We have these blue camo hats. Actually, I have one. Oh, it's downstairs. But um, signed by you, Jonathan. But right now in RM Supercross Fantasy, which is available for our Patreon supporters, Jason Pridmore is leading the way with 674 points. You're coming in at P5 with 607, but we only have, what, three races left? What's the plan, man? Have you been enjoying RM Fantasy with the Greg's Garage pod with co-host Jason Pridmore thingy this year or what? Yeah, you know, I think the plan's like the last few rounds. I'm just going to forget to put my team in and go with my default team, <laughs> which... Which I'm bummed about last week because I don't know why I jinxed Anderson, but the round, I thought he was going to have a mare one round, so I actually left him out in my top five. And then he was out of the top five, but now he's like, he had an awesome last race. So um, yeah, I'm going to have to rejig it for, for next week. Um, I mean, your picks last week were solid. You had Tomac, Stewart, Barsha, Muscan, which Muscan's been on a bit of a run. I understand that. Chase Sexton and then Hart Starts, man. Place. Starts. Whole shot yeah. machine. Yes. Yeah. It's a good point. But it's a lot harder for you guys over there because you guys are in bed when the races are going off. So it's it's a lot harder to yeah, pick so the team and things, you know? Generally, I'll watch. I've got supercrosslive.tv. I'll watch a couple of heats before I go to bed. Not heats, like practice. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah, yeah. Before I turn, before I turn my lights out on my bedside, I'll have a little quick flick at Supercross live Twitter feed and see what's what with the heats. <laughs> and then if I can remember to keep my eyes open enough, I'll, I'll rejig the team. But um, the wild card is always the hardest, isn't it? It's, it's yeah. tough. It is. Because they go from like 9th to 14th and somewhere in between. It's definitely brutal. Yeah. I, I hate to put my like fellow 
British American in there, but Dino was always a good shout for. He was always a good shout for the wild card, wasn't he? Well, he yeah, was. especially yeah. in like eighth, ninth, tenth area, or something. Yeah, but, but it was a horrible crash he's had. Ugh, yeah, foot peg he's, in the keister, man. That's it a didn't rough look good. One. Didn't he hit the he hit a building? Didn't he? He hit like a yeah, building like and split his or... ass open. Ugh. Poor guy. Yeah, it's there's a lot of reports out there. I heard foot peg. His yeah. foot peg is what got him, and then it ripped ripped his uh, butt cheek wide open. And but I do know this. Know. I talked to someone who was on site, and they were like, there was blood everywhere, like a pool of blood in the mud. He was bleeding so much out Ugh. of his Poor bastard. So I got so I've got so involved looking at the you know JP point situation. But what is the actual championship standing? Like, championship stand in terms of in terms of our RM Supercross fantasy. No, in terms of Supercross. Oh, 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 you know, Super, AMA, oh yeah. Tomac, Tomac, I think can wrap is, it up at the next round. I think that they is he were pretty saying. much one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so right now, Tomac has three hundred and twenty-five points over Jason Anderson, who's got two hundred and seventy-two. So, Oof. there's only, yeah, I mean, there's only seventy-five points left. So Jason's right because right now you're looking at JP. What basically fifty, mm, fifty-three points? I think is the difference right now. Yeah. With only seventy-five points on offer, yeah, and then Barsha sits third at two fifty-seven, and Malcolm is only four points behind uh, Barsha for third place. That would be a good top three finish for. That'd be for solid, yeah, good. yeah. So those guys only get one. Those guys only get one weekend off. I mean, can it? How gnarly is that? They get one weekend off of the whole year, and they're on a bike. I mean, a lot of them fly out Sunday. They're they they get a, like a rest day on Monday, and then they're on bikes until they go back to the next place. It's the risk, the risk that those guys have just seems so high, you know. Um, the grind, though, the like, grind. It's such a grind. Yeah, it's so hard can, to stay healthy. You can really see, you can see how, like, I think was it really one of the first guys that he had Supercross only contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I believe it was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because that because you got to take into why, account yeah. too. Yeah, because they get two weeks normally between Supercross and Pro Motocross season. Yeah, it starts so, right up again. Yeah, most of those teams have already been developing the outdoor bike. You know, so that's another weird thing. They they literally their practice bikes they've been on for a couple of weeks are already pro motocross bikes. So they get back on the supercross bike during the rate during the weekend, and they're just like, yeah, whatever. This thing feels totally different. It's a weird. Yeah, they'll start riding thing. outdoors now, I guess. Yeah, yeah, they have been already testing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've already been testing for outdoors. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Yep. Well, Jonathan, wow. thanks so much for joining us on the podcast, man. We wish you a tremendous amount of luck. Since Jason and I don't commentate those races, we definitely have a favorite. Um, mine's not you, but it could be. You know? oh, no, I'm joking, Jonathan. Of course it is. Of you got someone else is. to read out your Ariad then next time. Yes. <laughs> yes. I know Ariad Americas, they really appreciate it. So wouldn't be surprised if they clip that off and then start putting that up on social media. But thanks so, so much for anyway, joining us. We seen Jason last year in Europe for some golf. So get yourself over to a race and um, we, we can. Um, we can play a bit of golf, or I can treat you to coffee in the the KRT UFO hospitality. We'll do it again. I it was such a great trip. It's the the schedule is weirder. It's a little stranger this year, but man, it's uh it's good to know that I you're still thinking about swinging the stick. So I'm get I'm gonna be over there, and I mean I gotta come get a hat signed for whoever wins this thing, right? So you know, gotta do it. Glenn Glenn, Glenn was in second place in our deal, so hopefully. Like whoever Jason, if you win that thing, it doesn't matter. Whoever's in second place is going to be the winner because Jason doesn't get a hat. Oh, he doesn't get a hat. That's not very nice. 
It's all right. I'll get him to sign a <laughs> golf ball, put it up here in the little room here. You know, it'll be perfect. All right, guys. Thanks, Johnny. Thank Cheers, you so Johnny. much. Gotcha. See you soon. Cheers, buddy. Bye. Good luck this weekend. See ya. All right, bye. All right, with his departure, now we got Steve English all to ourselves. So, Steve, let's stop screwing around, get to World Superbike, and talk about what's really going on in the paddock. Obviously, there's been some good stuff, but let's get your assessment, your take of the first weekend, because it, you, like, said, like you said, I think I was the same way. I was a little bit nervous about Bautista testing. We knew he was fast, but then Jonathan comes out swinging, and there's only three-point difference after the first round. What do you think? Well, the one thing I'll say is I, I, don't, I do my best never to blow smoke up anyone, and uh, <laughs> genuinely, I did mean what I said I thought Johnny's performance in race one was as good as we've ever seen I think he's got 113 race wins now try and pick one that was better than that because he just went out and he needed to win it he needed the paddock needed him to win it as well because the last thing we needed to see was Alvaro run off into the distance and I thought just the manner in which he did it the last corner move you know I think it was one of those situations where there was only one one rider was going to be able to do that and it was Johnny and he managed to pick up the win. For years, like if you look back, all the times I've been on this pod with you, the one thing I've always said is that for the last few years, Johnny's been that margin for error for Kawasaki. And now he's up against a rider in top rack that's as good as him. And the Yamaha is arguably better than the Kawasaki, or at least as good as the Kawasaki. Put it that way, the two bikes have their strengths. And uh, obviously, you know, top rack on corner entry is amazing. And uh, JP, just whenever you were mentioning it about the, the break and uh, earlier on for Top Rack, the reason that we didn't really get to see the Top Rack we usually see is because Yamaha were really struggling with the front end in, uh, in Aragon. So he didn't have the confidence to ride like he normally rides. And instead, he just sort of settled. As strange as it was to see, Top Rack Raz Garioglu looked at it and said, you know what? Third place is good enough for me right now. This is a track I don't like. This is a track where... Yamaha isn't as strong as it could be, so he just wanted to make sure he could score as many points as possible. He settled for three third place finishes. It worked really well. We saw in a couple of races that he had to really grind for that third place, and Toprak did what he had to do. So that was impressive. But you know, you look at Bautista, you look at that Ducati, and I don't think anyone's ever said, Oh, I'd rather be on the slower bike. Everyone wants to be on the bike that's got that top speed. The story's the exact same as it was in 2019. Who's going to stop Bautista? I think there's more riders that can stop him now. I think Bautista has obviously spent two years on a Honda. He hasn't become a worse rider. But everyone else has become better. And I think that this is going to be the story of the year. I think we're going to have it where Toprak's going to be really strong in a lot of places. Johnny's obviously going to be strong. And then it's up to Alvaro to not crash. And Johnny mentioned it in in that and he, he was he was being polite because Alvaro has crashed at every track he's gone to over the course of the winter and he crashed in Aragon as well so he's going to have those mistakes that he had in 2019 now it's up to everyone else to make sure that they can capitalize on them so I got some questions for you and 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 you know Greg and I we sit in the booth we do these we do these races and I know just thinking about it this morning G-Dub there there have been races where Greg and I at the end, we're high-fiving each other because the racing was so good. Like Daytona this year, we had 57 laps to call, Steve. Not the 24-hour that like you had to deal with this week, but we're at the beginning of that race going 57 laps. Wow, it's a long race. And at the end of it, we had more energy than we did at the beginning, and I think it was because the racing was so good. I find myself actually laughing at that first race because Johnny was so relentless 
And he was so, he was such a menace to those guys, especially Batista, um, in turn six and seven, specifically where we spoke of. I also noticed he was able to get his bike tipped in a little bit earlier and the bike still held a line. And it literally, as I was thinking all this, you talked about the front end, uh, the stuff that they, they, they had done. So I was, it was really crazy because you, it was like you kind of channeled what I was thinking, you know? Um, oh, well, you texted me at the time, I'm sure, JP, and then, then yeah. I was just able to say it. So, you know, it worked I'm out sure. really well. Yeah, um, but, like, do you ever just sit there and just, like, I know I do. I do this with G-Dub. I, I sit there and sometimes I just laugh. I, I When I see somebody doing something extraordinary, and especially when you see a guy like Johnny who's won six World Superbike Championships, and you think all the years he struggled prior to that on inferior equipment, I just sit there and I, I, I just laugh at how relentlessly good he is sometimes well i think that for me when i look at it i think it's easy to forget how good top guys are because we see them do it all the time you know when you look at uh I, I, do you know what i'm gonna annoy greg now when you no, look that's at Tom so Brady easy to do buccaneers so i'm doing i'm doing such a good job you know, when you look at him leaving New England and he doesn't miss a beat, you know, it's just a clear indication that he was making the difference for the Patriots. And, uh, you know, Greg, you got your hand, your, your hand in your head because you know it's true. It is Because the true. best 100%. guys just make that difference. And it doesn't matter what sport you're looking at. You know, JP, we looked at Tiger in the Masters Aragon weekend as well. He did something that no one else on the face of this planet could have done. You know, coming back from all his injuries, his surgeries, going to the toughest place in the world, the toughest walk around a golf course in the world. And he went out that first day and did things that no one else could do. When you're looking at people that achieve what those guys achieve, and Johnny's at that apex as well, they just don't want to lose. They, They do what it takes to win. And... I thought we saw that again in Aragon, and that's what made it so impressive for me because he could rest on his laurels. He could say, do you know what? I'm at the age now where I can retire and I've made my money. I can go back home, look after my family. You know, he's got a house in Phillip Island where Tarsh is from. He's got his house at home in Northern Ireland, that new house in Spain that he, he was talking to us from as well. He's got all the trappings that come with success and being the best there's ever been at something. And instead, all he wants is one more. You it's know, just, and it's, I think it's wild. that's what's impressive for me. Yeah, it's wild to me because a lot of times a guy like Johnny, it had to be so difficult to get passed over to go to MotoGP uh, for as many years as he did. So to still find that motivation to keep coming back. And I want to fire off a couple things to you and just get your initial thoughts on some of these since we have you on here today and just going back. So, Greg, I hope you don't mind. I'm just going to ask him a couple. Like, you know, when you look at, I, I want to know what your grade is when you look at Honda over the weekend at Aragon. Was there a different feel with two new riders, uh, guys that maybe have never been in World Superbike Paddock? I thought Vierge and Lecamona did did a good job. Um, what was the feel for you with, with the Honda effort? I thought they did a really good job. I thought the two riders jumped in and immediately looked like Superbike riders because we've seen guys come in from the Grand Prix Paddock and take a big time to adapt to the Pirelli tyres and this, that and the other. The changes that Pirelli have made to their tyres, Johnny was talking about earlier on, all, all the new development tyres, basically mean anyone can jump on with any riding style and do a good job with Pirelli. Because Locatelli still rides like a 600, he's still carrying all of his corner speed, gets on the side of the tyre, whacks it open, and he's able to, to do what he wants with it. Top rack rides all on the front, and he's got 
when obviously Aragon's not a good example of it because he was struggling a little bit with the bike. But you've got all these different styles that now work with a Pirelli, but you still have to jump on it and have the confidence that a tyre that's got a little bit more flex, bikes that are a lot more flex in them as well. The two Honda riders jumped onto their bikes and did a really good job. But I'd also qualify it by saying Honda's tested a lot at Aragon. What are they mm-hmm. going to be like in Aston? Yeah. So that's going to be interesting to see how they can transition. But the one thing I will say is yeah. that Honda, Honda's made a step forward. And they've also made a big step forward because of the riders they have. Because Haslam and Bautista, they weren't, they weren't doing what we saw from the Honda riders last week. They came away with three top 10 finishes for both riders. We never saw that whenever it was Bautista and Haslam. For all their experience, they weren't able to, to do it. And Bautista, the reason he couldn't do it was because any chance he got, he was trying to get to the front and the bike wasn't capable of it. So he had tons of crashes. You know, Leon, you look at the second half of the year whenever he was with Kawasaki alongside Johnny, he was missing a step. And that's not, a, that's, you know, you're Johnny's teammate. You're, you're in a really difficult position. And then he jumps onto the Honda and he was the mule. He was doing all the work. And Bautista was the one that could, probably just have that little bit more performance than him so i think for me honda going from from two experienced riders to two rookies you know it looks like a risk on paper but realistically what were bautista and haslam going to do if they were still on the bike you know we've two years of data to say that we're going to do more what they had been doing so i think making the change it was was a good change for honda brought in new perspective and it brought in riders that were able to just jump on the bike and see if they could make it work i think especially with lekawona I'm excited to see what he can do. Yeah, I I agree with you on on all of that. It's um, it was almost like the second season with Honda. You could even hear Bautista talking about it this weekend without trying to be too critical of his last two years. It was very nice for him to be kind of back. You know, he kind of like a return, like he kept on talking about to to Ducati. Um, talking about a couple other guys, we talked about Ronaldi, who backs up uh, who backs up Bautista very well. Lowe's and Locatelli. Um, it looked like Alex had an up and down weekend, two fifths to come out of uh, after he fell off in the first race. Had the fastest lap of the race, I believe, in race two, which was very, uh, I, I thought that was impressive and encouraging for him. Locatelli, on the other hand, just didn't seem to be anywhere on the weekend. And I, I mean, you barely, re- you barely mentioned him hardly because he just wasn't, he wasn't in the mix, it didn't seem. Um, is it a sophomore jinx type of thing or do you, do you expect this to turn around for him moving forward? Because he, he was a long way off. I think he was just stuck in a little bit of no man's land at times, you know, because he was in the first race, six or seven seconds behind Rinaldi, maybe five seconds at the end. But he, he was stuck in that fifth, sixth place all the way through the weekend. So it was a good weekend and it was a solid weekend. I think his weekend was very similar to those. Both of them had a crash, Alex in race one and Andrea in race two. And without that, both of them were coming away with top six finishes in all three races, which I think for both of them would have been a pretty good weekend. You know, I think both would be disappointed with it but when you look at it that the Ducati had a clear edge this was a track that suits the bike and also the temperature soared so the track got slick and if you look back over the last three years anytime the track gets slick the Ducati just generates grip better than everyone else that's why we saw Misano last year when Rinaldi was able to win when Bissani was able to finish inside the top five or six you look back to when Rinaldi won on the Go 11 bike it was on really hot track temperatures he was able to to use the x tire make it work so when the track temperature gets up and the grip goes down like that the ducati does a really good job so that was the bike to be on last week and it's easy to say it's the bike to be on because bautista won two races 
always look where the second bike is and with Ducati look where the third bike is as well and typically when it's a track that's working really well for them Rinaldi's in the fight Bissani makes a step forward as well that's what we saw in the Sunday in Aragon so I think for Locatelli and Lowe's they were, realistically they were fighting out for fifth and sixth anyway so yeah. I think they did they did a solid job but certainly for both of them they wouldn't have job, done the job that they wanted to have I think for Locatelli like you mentioned the sophomore jinx What's your expectation for Locatelli? Oh, I just expected him to be a little bit closer to that front three or four with some of the pace that he had showed, you know, towards the end of last year and things. Um, I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I really rate him. I think he's really, really good. And I just figured he'd be, I figured he'd be in shot a little bit more than we saw him. Like, it just seemed like he was a bit of the quiet guy in that one. And and you just mentioned another guy that I expected coming off his first full season I thought Bassani did such an amazing job last year. Um, and I think it was race two that he kind of showed a little bit more form on Sunday at Aragon. Um, because you look at him and, and both Garrett. They were the next two guys I was going to talk to you about. Bassani seemed like he was able to kind of get the rebound a little bit more from race one and move himself a little bit more forward on Sunday. But he's another guy, especially speaking about the Ducati. You talk about that third rider. He has been that third rider. And... Last year at the end, he was kind of he was he was up there battling podiums and things. Um, seemed a just, bit off. Just about Bassani. The the one thing I'd say is that the reason and and you know what you know what it was like during your career as well, JP. That you're always going to give everything you've got, and you've got that yep, inner belief 100%. that you can you can you can have your good day every day. You know, yep. Bassani last season there was absolutely no expectation on him. Like I think people had forgotten who he was coming into that season. And I remember talking to people and saying, like, just remember, like, whenever he was in the super sport class, there was a lot of times that you saw he was fast. He went to Moto2. So, you know, riders don't get a Grand Prix chance unless they're talented. But Bassani was lost because he had a really bad accident and took him a long time to recover. And people move on. People, people forget about you. And yeah, he came in 100%. last season. He was still that talented rider. And then he got confident. And he had some really good results. But he's also on the best bike on the grid. So there's always going to be good weekends on that bike. And I think that coming into the season, because there was so little expected of him, that even, like, obviously the podium, especially in Barcelona, was impressive. The end of the season was really impressive. Mizano was a good weekend. So you're not taking anything away from him. But they were the marks of what he could do. And suddenly people stood up and took notice of him. And like I looked at last year and people said, you know, Rinaldi really struggled last year. Again, it came down to, for me, what was your expectation going into the season? And I remember writing, I said, Rinaldi's going to win races. He's going to finish. If he finishes top five, top six in the championship, it's a good season for him. But he was brought in to back up Scott Redding. Scott had to win the championship for it to be a successful season for Ducati. It's the same this year for him. He has to win some races. If he can finish third in the championship, it's a fantastic season. If he doesn't, he's been beaten in, in all likelihood by the lead rider from Yamaha, Ducati and Kawasaki. So, you know, it's not bad. And I think that it's, it's, it's easy to look at things and think everyone's going to have a linear career. Locatelli finished fourth in the World Championship last year. If he doesn't finish third, it's a, it's a bad season. And you're kind of like, is that really the case? Last year, we had a lot of injuries for other riders. We had it where Locatelli exceeded your expectation. I think if he finishes fifth in the World Championship and wins a race this year, he's had a better season than he had last year. Because last year, everyone said, why is he on the bike? Why isn't Gerloff on the bike? So he went into that season where he was 
being talked down all the time. Whereas now he's being talked up. When's he going to win a race? And dealing with that pressure is really the, what hard. defines the top riders. And you mentioned Gerloff. It's dealing with that pressure that has been really tough for him because he came into last year. The expectation was he should have been on the factory seat. When's he going to win a race? He starts the season really strong, shows a lot of potential, and then it all fell apart. So it's 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 tough. Jesus, like it's easy for me to sit in the commentary box and put my feet up. I never, I, I I'm never the one missing the apex. I'm I'm the one making a mistake on a call, but that's not that's not you know life and death. Whereas for these guys out on the track, it is, you know, and, and they're under that scrutiny. They're under that pressure all the time. And that's where, for me, I always look at it and think, what do I think they'll do at the start of the year versus what did they do at the end of the year? And you try and see who's exceeded your expectations or for whatever reason, why didn't they exceed your expectation? And then you look for the reasoning behind it. Well, I think that you, you nailed it. Like you got, you got certain guys, like the top three guys that we have, They've already made it. They know what to expect from themselves. They've dealt with that pressure, and I think that a lot of these guys, like Garrett, like like Locatelli, like uh, like Alex, they just that 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 jump is so small, but it's over the course of a long race, it's a lot bigger, you know. And I think that it'll be interesting. So I would be absolutely remiss if I didn't just talk about this because it was. I mean, I don't know. Imagine what you were thinking, but watching Redding roll around in fifteenth, sixteenth place. Um, the frustrations that you saw, I believe, was it the Super Bowl race or was it race two, Steve, where he was having some brake problems and it's just, you could tell the frustration level was high, as it would be. I, I definitely never look at a rider and see that their frustration is getting the better of them because I understand the frustrations that, that you go through there. I don't think that, there's two things that shocked me about BMW. Um, number one, where he was at and the fact that uh, Ilya was, the, was basically the most maybe the best performing BMW rider there of, of the four. Um, I know Baz did a nice job. Eugene even did a nice job, but the BMWs still look like they don't just have one step to make. They got a big, big step to make. I think for, for me again, it's what's your expectation of BMW? Mm -hmm. Like they are the, arguably the weakest manufacturer on the grid. They've got the resources to be a lot stronger, but you know, when Scott signed for them, he didn't sign for them because he, you know, this was the place he wanted to be. No one's yep. given up the factory Ducati seat unless yep. there's reasons behind it. And I remember yep. at the time, you know, at Donington was whenever I started talking about it on the world feed because that's whenever I started to hear in the paddock what was happening. And I said, Bautista's looking for that seat and he's he's, he's cheap. So Ducati yep. are going to take him because they know he's going to win a load of races. Scott, yep. for for all the talent Scott has, he's not cheap. So he's not cheap and he's got a manager that drives a really hard bargain. So if I'm Ducati, I'm dropping him like a hot stone because I know Bautista's going to jump on that bike, appreciate it and do a really good job. So Scott got criticized for signing for BMW when really there was nothing else on the table. You know, when, when you look back at your career, JP, how many times did you say, I don't want to be on the best bike, I'll go for a midfield team? Yeah, you know, and, well, and Scott's yeah. the exact same. He, you'd never, you'd never want it, but sometimes you end up. That's the way it goes because decisions are taken out of your hands. And Scott got criticised because BMW offered him a big paycheck. Now, if Ducati, and this is exactly what happened to Chaz Davis as well the year before, Ducati offered both Davis and Reading a contract. There was an offer put on the table for them, but it was an offer 
that was basically impossible to accept because it was such a massive pay cut that it showed how little respect they had for the rider. Now, Ducati's a fantastic manufacturer. They, they cultivate this family image because we're used to seeing Foggy winning championship after championship, Bayless being a Ducati superstar, all these things. You know, when you're winning, they'll look after you. The yes. second you stop winning, they drop you. And that's where like the, the, the family atmosphere is only there when you're successful. And Scott wasn't successful at the critical time last year. That's, he had his two otherwise he might have been offered year. a little bit more, wouldn't he? He would have been offered well, a little it, bit more. Yeah. It, if you look at Donington last year, was a disaster for him. I think he scored a couple of points and that was it. And then that's whenever all the Bautista story started to gain momentum. So the worst time possible for him to have a bad weekend came when Bautista was knocking on the door. So Ducati made a decision that, in all likelihood, if you're the team manager for Ducati, you're probably making as well. So I can't criticise Ducati for it. I can't criticise Scott for it. But that doesn't help him now. He's into year one of what could be a three-year project with BMW. And he's looking at a wall that's just massive. You know, pretty, you pretty mentioned about, steep. but yeah, and and it's it's a shame because I think BMW are putting the resources in, but you also have to look at it and say that they're coming from so far back that if they have four rounds this year where the bike's really good and they get good results, they've made a step forward, and that's not what Scott Redding wants to sign up for. He wants to sign up for winning a world championship, and I think he's going to get that. Well, he's he's had that rude awakening in Aragon, oh. and he's going to see this. You know, the battle in the midfield is tough. You know, we talked about it the last time I was on the pod, about if he thinks that the battle with Ray and Raz Gariaga at the front was hard fought, imagine what he's going to find whenever he's battling with Van der Mark for, you know, ninth in a Super Bowl race so that you pick up a well, single point. Well, Van der Mark, what about, like, just Lucas Myers and, and Odell and some of those guys? I mean, he's going to be battling. He's hoping to get into that battle with those guys. It looked like he was just struggling. So we're headed to Assen. One of the key figures of the BMW team is missing. It's got to be like such a bummer for Vandemark. What what are you hearing about him as far as a possible return? I mean, obviously he'll be there this weekend, but he's obviously not riding, yeah? Well, the talk is he's going to try. He's going to have a oh, fitness okay. test on Thursday, and he's going to try and ride. Now, I'm sure, well, actually, JP, look at all the injuries you've had during your career. If there was a chance of racing at Laguna in front of everyone, you, were, you, you would have done everything you could to be fit. I think if we were racing anywhere other than, than in Assen next week, Vandermark's not riding. But it's his home round. He's going to do everything he can. He's got a really bad injury. It's a spiral fracture of the leg. So he was out mountain biking, and I think that his foot didn't come out of the clip. And he just ended up, it went around on him, and that was it. So it's a, it's a nasty injury that needs time to recover. And probably the last thing he needs to do is jump on a bike and race at a really physical racetrack like Assen. Oh, yeah. That's All those big one. changes of direction. But it's Michael Vandermark and it's Assen. So he's going he's gonna to go. And is it left or right leg, Steve? Left or right leg? Uh, I want to say it's his right leg, but I'm not 100% sure on that. And, and I think that it's going to be interesting to see, how, see what happens because if he's not fit, Michelcheck will jump back onto the bike. And you mentioned Ilya and the job that he did last time out. It was really impressive, especially in race one. From that point on, then it was Baz and Laverty that stepped up and became the leading BMW riders. But I think it's it would be remiss not to to mention Ilya because 
His dad is fighting at the front in Ukraine. He said in Aragon that he feels he should be back fighting as well. But he's also got that thing of he's put in 25 years of work to become a world-class motorcycle racer. So do you want to give that up? You know, and, and that's the battle that he's going to be facing. And it's, it's an impossible task for him. You know, it, it, and I thought that's where he came in, did a really good job last time. But he also came in with no pressure. And again, like what I was saying about for Locatelli last year, for Bassani, when there's no expectation and you come in and do a good job, everyone thinks you're a legend. When there's expectation that you're going to come in and do a good job and you do a mediocre job, you look at Scott Redding last time out, suddenly that's where the pressure really builds. And, you know, Assen's probably the best track in the world for Redding to go to because he's always been really strong there. But on the Ducati, he's been really strong in Aragon as well. So yes. it's going to be tough. It would be interesting. I my guess biggest thing, yeah, my biggest ahead. thing with BMW, honestly, is it's not the amount of resources they're putting in, and it's not how intelligent the resources are. I think that with BMW, it comes down more to a corporate culture and the way that they view developing a motorcycle. You know, it, and I think that for some reason, there's a lot of that that's holding this program back. You know, that if you look at the way some of the other teams have done it over the years, I think that there are steps that BMW can make to get basically in football, we call it chunk plays, right? There's these chunk developments or chunk plays that they need to really come up with to close the gap, to get closer so they can start refining. And for some reason with no evidence at all, just having been around BMW a couple of times on a race bike, I think that's kind of what it's down to. And they're going to need some type of shift. And the question becomes, are there riders strong enough in personality? We know Scott Redding is, right? To be able to influence the development in a way that's actually going to transform the corporate culture. Is there anything that you think that I'm on on that, Steve, or any indication that you see in that direction or no? Well, I think just, just to take your analogy a, a little bit further, like I think when you look at BMW right now, you're looking at a team that doesn't have consistency. They're, they're a team that's going from one offensive coordinator to the next every year and they're changing everything up and instead of it being a west coast system one year it becomes you know a, a run and gun the next year and they're trying everything imaginable to find a solution and instead of actually just looking at it and saying the only way we're going to find a solution is to be consistent and methodical all the way through they always look like they're just chasing chasing something and you know they might as well be trying trick plays at this stage because they're they're just making it difficult for themselves with changes within the personnel. The right people are probably there, but like you said, Greg, the culture isn't there because at the end of the day, they always seem in, in the racing department, they always seem like a car company that goes racing. And they make fantastic bikes. There's no one's gonna deny that. Best selling bike in, in Europe must be the GS. You know, they make a great stock bike when you go to the TT Everyone wants to be on a BMW, but when you go to World Superbikes, it doesn't translate. And I think their biggest problem is that they're, they're just, they don't know what they want to be. And when you look at the, the structure they have, you've got Mark Bongers in there from BMW. You've got Sean Muir as the team principal for the SMR operation. But who's actually heading the project? When we go to do an interview with the head of BMW, who do we talk to? Do we talk mm-hmm. to Sean, who's the head of the team, or do we talk to Mark, who's the head of the racing department? You know, and, and when there's two cooks, 
it spoils the broth and BMW just I don't know who's I don't know who's making all the decisions and I think that there's a lot that's there's a lot that's wrong within the organization and it's a shame because there's an awful lot of really good people there you know you look at the crew chiefs Ian Lord's a very good crew chief you look at Marcus Eschenbacher all the success he's had you've got Adrian Gorst in there as well as their technical coordinator really good group of mechanics you know engineers everything like it but there's something missing um you know what what's that something you have to look at the success that other manufacturers have where there's that single person that's their focal point to drive everything forward and it's hard to understand where that's going to come from for bmw now steve we're getting late in this podcast pretty deep into it jason do you have any other world superbike stuff because i want to ask steve real quick about world super sport yeah the world super sport was insane i wanted to just see if greg got that two cooks spoil the broth did you get that one, G-Dub? I got, I got it. Okay, Cook just want to make sure you heard that one. It's a I, don't, good, I, don't, I don't see how that's applicable to anything. As well as, we as well as, life. as well as, just for our listeners, tire blankets. Did you get that one earlier on? Yeah, oh, of course, tire, tire blankets. blankets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tire warmers. Yeah, that's what happens. But you know, blankets. That's what like happens that when you English. expand the podcast to worldwide influence. That's yeah, right. just just have your European bingo card the next time that me and Johnny are on, and you'll be fine. So, Steve, look. Uh, just, Obviously, just before, World Super before, Sport. Before we, we move on to that as well, Greg, I, yeah. I'm quite keen to see what your guy's perspective is on Garrett Gerloff as well, because we obviously look at him from a very different perspective in Europe, because we would have watched him in Moto America from the outside looking in. And JP, I know you had a good chance whenever you came over to Europe last year to catch up with Garrett. And you know, the potential is huge for Gerloff. But now these next couple of rounds... They're going to be they're going to be a referendum for what the whole future holds for him, and I'm really keen to see how he deals with it because he's he's fucking fast. He's super talented, yeah. you know. Yeah. And and I think it's always it's always worth remembering that that's not always enough in the world stage, especially now whenever it's as competitive as it is. So I'm really keen to know what the perspective from the Moto America paddock is about him, especially considering last time out in MotoGP we had Cam put it on pole, so it showed again the level of rider that you can have come through for Motor America, just like Garrett showed for the first year and a half in World Superbikes. Well, I think there's two things to this. I'd be interested to get Greg's perspective. From my my thing, he's kind of going back to the scene of the crime, isn't he, uh, this weekend, Steve, from what happened last year. I think every great athlete has the ability to forget. Um, golf is a big one with that. Even, you know, you have to be able to walk off of a bad hole, forget, and move forward. I think that the... Whatever had happened to Garrett after Assen last year with the bosses of Yamaha um, or whoever might have been involved has scarred him so much that it's just been a difficult one for him to forget and get over because it was kind of the same thing. We saw him test this year. He was always there, wasn't he, in testing. He was top three, top four, but he was always there. Racing seems to have become a lot more difficult for him in the sense that the racing side of stuff now he there's something mentally that is just blocking whatever forward progress he can make and um it's got to be frustrating for him even you know you saw him up there getting the uh, what is it the privateer award or whatever it is there um in the first race top independent rider top independent rider thanks g-dub and he just didn't look happy and he's not he's not going to be happy running around and you know when does it when does it when does it turn from people being patient to Garrett just finally getting frustrated enough and going, I want to go do something else. That's that's what I hope never happens. I, I want to be able to see him 
fulfill the potential that we all feel like he has. And we've seen the speed, as you say, Steve. And I think for Cam, even like you talk about him, I think that the impact of that pole position will mean a lot more uh, uh, if he does it in Italy or if he does it in Portugal or if he does it in somewhere away from home. I think that home cooking, just like Vandemark wanting to come back to Assen, maybe he doesn't come back this weekend if it's not there. So I think for Garrett, it's there's a there's there's something in his makeup right now that got so scarred. It'll be interesting to him going to the line this weekend. That first run in race one down into turn one. Where's he going to come out of that? Right. That's going to be it's going to be interesting. But but you know he had his hand slapped pretty hard after last year, and I feel bad for him. But um, yeah, he's got to try to forget it and move forward and remember he's world class. Just out, out of curiosity, at, at oh, what sorry. point? Do you stop feeling bad for him? Well, I mean, for me personally, I don't feel bad for him anymore. I think that, uh, you know, you have the entire offseason to get your head right. There are resources available for you. Obviously, we know he was in the gym. He was training. I mean, those photos that he took were unreal, all that kind of stuff. But the you got those line you is, got those up on your walls, don't you, at the house, G-Dub, huh? Mm, yeah, exactly. Yeah, what, yeah. what I should look like in a couple of years. Um <laughs> For my, for my endurance race at Road Atlanta in September. Um, no, but I think that, um, and, and I don't know, I don't, I don't talk to Garrett, you know, as much as, as I should, but the thing is, is you got to get mental resources. I mean, there are plenty of, of coaches out there. There are, you know, plenty of sports psychologists, you know, that, that, that he should be tapped into. But I think that if he doesn't get it figured out here in the next three races, three race weekends, and stick his nose in the fight, and get up in the mix. Uh, I, you know, I fear that his world superbike career is going to be over, or he's going to be a guy who bounces around in, you know, tier two, tier three, tier four teams or whatever for the rest of his career. And that's the big thing. It's like, um, you've got to just say as an athlete, I'm broken. I need help. I need to be fixed. Something's wrong here. I've got to go find some help. And I think that there's enough resources available for him to do that. I mean, I think Steve, you and I were talking on the phone the other day, and Jason may know the story, but, you know, even if you talk to Colin Edwards, you know, all the way back in 1994, Jason, how old was Colin when he became a factory Yamaha Vance and Hines superbike rider? 17, 16? Eight, yeah, he was a teenager. because um, He was a teenager, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So for Colin Edwards, I remember back in, back in that time, there were some confidence issues with Colin. He came from a 250 GP bike to a superbike. And he went and, and, and talked to a sports psychologist and got these like affirmation stuff on tape because I had a friend back then um, who ended up getting those tapes from, from Colin. And, you know, those types of things, obviously for Colin, you look at him, Jason, you know him really well. You would never think that that guy in a million years would have any confidence issues. But he did. He did because of the situation he was thrust to. You know, he goes from, what, supercross, motocross type racing, you know, motocross to 250 GP to all of a sudden, hey, you're, you're the next kid on the block. Yeah. And then, boom, he got thrust right into World Superbike. So, you know, it, it's one of those things where my biggest thing, Steve, is who is Garrett surrounding himself with that needs to tell him, go get help, go get this thing sorted out, whether it's his team, whether it's his friends or whatever. And maybe he is. And maybe he's going to make a step, and maybe there's some things, you know, that that are going to help. I just don't know. Well, to answer your question, in my perspective, Steve, I do feel bad for him, but it's not at the level of what you're thinking. I just feel bad that um, that this has happened to him in a way where it's not like feeling bad for him for his results. It's more feeling bad for him in the sense that he's not he's not 
live into the potential that he knows that he can do. And I think as a as an athlete, you see this a lot in a lot of different sports where um, guys got to a certain level. You got to remember, just before all this happened, the world was sitting at his feet. I mean, he'd gone and done a MotoGP race. He'd shown huge potential in World Superbike, and there was all these things. He got signed to a, a contract just before Assen. And thank goodness he did, because who knows what would have happened had had it gone the other way in the sense that maybe Top Rack doesn't win the championship or whatever the case. Um, but I, I feel more sad for him as an athlete. I feel bad for him as an athlete. I don't, I, I, it's not a result thing. Um, I, I, know, I know how you're asking that question. And for me, it's kind of like one of those things where, you know, you want to see guys do the best that they can and live to the potential that they, they have shown. Um, but there's something bigger than, like when Greg talks about he needs, a, he needs somebody there, it's not a riding coach. He doesn't need somebody to tell, tell him how to ride a motorcycle. He doesn't need somebody to tell him how to set up a bike or interact with a team or any of that. This is all on his shoulders right now. And that pressure's it's, it's, I, I got to think that it's pretty, pretty tough. I mean, Jay, we've seen Garrett come back from injury, right? Remember the big oh, yeah. high side he had at Daytona, snapped his leg, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but I it's mean, different. When you're dealing between the ears, man, it's, it's different. So I, I think for me, the other thing that's different as well is that when you jump in, and again, like I said earlier on, as a rookie, when the expectation is low, because when Garrett came in, one of the big question marks was, well, how good is the level in Moto America? Because we didn't know if the level is really strong or if it's just got you know, a lot of riders that are at the same level but not really world-class level. And Garrett came in, and it was up to him to show that, you know what, the level in America is still really high, and he did that. So when he came in in that, in that rookie season in twenty he surpassed the expectation and then it was up to him to then build on that and the problem was that he went to those opening rounds and he was just getting involved in accidents and whenever you're racing like I always said it that whenever you're racing in Moto America he only had to beat Cam yeah and that's exactly right. instead you had 10-15 Cam Bobiers at the front of the field so it suddenly became very unforgiving and the world championship is unforgiving should be unforgiving and it's up to you to prove that you're tough enough mentally physically and then talented enough to be able to get everything done Garrett's talent isn't in question but it's very difficult to look at what we've seen from him over the last few years and not think about the the quote of what was it uh, sports doesn't build character it reveals character and right now the character that's been revealed from Assen last year all the way to now isn't one that if you were a team manager, you'd be in a hurry to sign. And the problem is that he's racing for an Italian team, for a manufacturer that wants to have an Italy-centric lineup as well, you know, because when you look at the... We're going to move on to Supersport, like you said, Greg. Baldessari comes in, wins on his debut in World Supersport, finishes second in the next race. He's a young Italian rider that's won Grand Prix and now has the chance to reignite his career. He could easily go out and win the championship this year and do what Locatelli did. What are Yamaha going to do then? Are they going to put him onto a factory bike? Let's say Toprak leaves. Maybe that opens up one of the factory seats. And then you've got Locatelli and Baldessari. If Toprak stays, Yamaha aren't going to want to lose Baldessari if he's really strong on a super sport bike. So where does he go then? He potentially goes to GRT. And if you've got a Japanese rider on the other bike that brings in a massive paycheck that pays for half the team... Chances are the talent and the potential and what Gerloff could become 
becomes less important whenever they've got a young rider that they know is going to be hungry for success that could be able to jump on the bike and do as good a job as, as, as what we've seen. So I think that's where the real, like, like what Greg said, the next three rounds become really important because we go to Assen, Estoril, Mizano, and then we've got a month off. That's when the MotoGP contracts are all going to be sorted. So we'll know what Moto2 riders are going to be available to move across to superbikes, all this kind of thing. And that's whenever we'll start to gradually filter into place for what happens in superbikes. So these next nine races are when, hopefully, we get to see the real Gareth Garloff come back. Because otherwise, what happens, and this is the same for all riders. This isn't the case of saying it because it's Gareth. For all riders, you are what your results say you are in the paddock until you change them. And you don't have an awful lot of people that are full of patience in the paddock. And that's no. that's where, like you said, JP, going back to the scene of the crime becomes yep. really important. He needs to make, and we've said this all, all the way through. I, I remember being on with you before Moss last year and saying Garrett needed to have three top six finishes, solid weekend, and then move on from Aston last year. Yeah, He hasn't moved on from it. And no. he, he had problems in, in Aragon. We know that the Yamaha was struggling. Top Rack was struggling. But... Garrett's got no business finishing half a second a lap slower than Locatelli. So he he needs to he, he needs to step up and, and there needs to be accountability from him as well because for as nice a guy as Garrett is and as popular as as he as he as he was whenever he was going really well, from Assen last year onwards, he's been very keen to draw a line underneath it. And the media can't draw a line underneath it until he stands on the podium again. That's and I right. think that's the thing that that he really needs to understand that it's not the world against Garrett Gerloff. People want to see him do well. Yep. I know that for me, I want to see him do well. I want to see him get back to the front because, you know what, I'm selfish. If there's an American rider doing well, all of us make more money. It's a massive market. <laughs> Everyone wants Garrett to do well. And, 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 that, and that's not me trying to be flipping with it as well. Like The pressure that these guys are under, I don't underestimate it. I don't envy it. Yeah. But it's also the life that they've chosen and oh, it's where there's, yeah, a, there's yeah. a full team behind him and last year that team must have felt like they were wasting their time for the second half of the year yeah. and that's where it becomes really difficult because maybe Garrett needs to have a change of scenery maybe he needs to be away from Yamaha but whenever you've spent your whole career in America and then moving across for two three years in Europe always on a Yamaha that's also tough so that's where it becomes really interesting to see what happens next yeah I think mm. I think that and I don't know what Greg thinks about this, but when he went over there, you're you're in you're in when you're trying to prove yourself, everything else gets blocked out. Like I used to always say I used to love going to World Endurance because nobody knew who I was over there. I didn't know who anybody else was. I didn't know who the fast riders were, who the slow rider. I didn't know who any of those guys were. So you kinda got a clean slate. So you are you're doing your thing. I think that when you struggle, you know, then you start hearing all that, well, you know, this guy came from Moto America. Then, then all of a sudden, you're putting all this extra pressure on yourself of like, well, I'm actually representing a series. I'm actually representing a country. I'm actually, I'm actually representing something that could potentially feed more Americans over here. And then and you start getting all that extra weight or pressure put on your shoulders and you're not performing. I think that that's when the mental stuff starts. And I think, um, you know, I know we're all wishing the best for him any more than we all for Cameron, you know. Watching Cameron slide out of fourth the other week at, at Coda, those are those are the kind of those are the kind of like things that can shape the path of a career. Don't you agree, Greg? In the sense that, like, 
There's such huge there's such huge expectations for Americans when they come here to ride any more than an Italian sitting on Italian soil. But when you've only got two or three guys in a race, and in in our case in World Superbike, we got one guy. It's it's it, there's a lot of pressure on these guys. So um, you know you hope that Cameron bounces back. We know he will. We know he will, and we hope that Garrett sometimes will or some some how will find his way back. So yeah. Either either way, Garrett Gerloff in ten years from now is going to be a stronger person because of this stuff. I mean that 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 for sure. But he needs to find a solution. But let's go to World Supersport. Not so much the race because the racing was unreal, Steve. I mean there was a save in the last corner, last lap that was unbelievable. You can describe it to us. But um, in you're talking about World Supersport, one of the things that we're very interested in here is how you felt the balancing of these next-generation motorcycles is because we saw it first in Daytona, but Daytona is no benchmark as to what real racetracks are going to be. So in, in looking at World Supersport, tell us a little bit about what you saw, and uh, especially that race one, last corner, last lap situation. Yeah, that last lap save was just class. But it was also where both races went down to the last corner. And uh, obviously enough, to, to win your... Your first race for Baldessari with, you know, just a ridiculous save. Like, there's, there's no two ways around it. Even if he had to just finish second, it would have been the best save we'll see all season. And instead, it ended up being the best save you'll see for God knows how many years. Because it was for the race <laughs> win as well. And yeah. uh, I, thought, I thought it was really good. The Yamaha should be the best bike out there. Because guess what? It's been the benchmark for years. It's the one that we should measure everything to. I think that Ducati seem to have missed a beat in winter testing because they changed they changed an awful lot going to Aragon they were testing through the winter apparently with more power than what they had in Aragon and then that's obviously going to be something that's going to be fed upwards going along I think if you want to look to see where the championship is right now Glenn Van Stralen's fourth in the championship and looked unbelievable all the way through the weekend now Glenn has a much better bike this year it's basically the cm racing bike from last year so it's a bike that's tuned by the evan brothers team so it's what we saw with uh, bernardi last year whenever he was able to challenge for podiums and race wins and all that kind of thing so it's a much better bike but van stralen's never shown anything like this as well so that showed that the the yamaha had probably a bit too much of an advantage last time out in aragon i think it's gonna be interesting to see how the fim balance it out overall because you'd expect to see it where the Ducati makes a bit of a step forward and probably the Triumph as well. MV, they're going to need something as well. But it's just about putting it where... I don't, I don't really like balancing rules where people are trying to make it where all the bikes are the exact same because that's not how it should be. You should have an inherent advantage in one way or the other for different bikes. I think that we saw that the Kawasaki was really close to the Yamaha. Now, that's last year's bike as well. But we saw Chan Onchu has made a big step forward. So those two bikes look like they're where they should be i think we're going to see ducati make a step forward this weekend triumph will make a bit of a step forward as well and we know with manzi that he's a good rider as well so he should be there or thereabouts bulag is going to be a lot closer in assen than what we saw in aragon i think and then it's going to be up to scott smart to make sure that each of the bikes has an advantage in different areas but then as well that we end up where they're a little bit closer to each other yeah it's definitely going to be exciting and we, we get our first taste of Supersport in its full full glory in Moto America this weekend at Road Atlanta. So we're I'm looking forward to seeing that and seeing how those, you know, how those balance. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, well, my guess is Scott's probably going to be with you guys, but our guy Teague 
uh, who's in charge of tech supports probably got the hotline to Scott all weekend long to see because there were adjustments made during the race weekend at Daytona. Yeah, because I think that's that's going to be the key thing that you've got Britain, World Championships, and America all running the same spec. And Scott is looking after all of those championships. So it's not like it was when the 300s came out, where there was only really the World Championship that he was trying to balance out. Now he's trying to do it where he's got all these different championships and you're able to take data from all of them. So that's that's going to really help to, to bring things closer. Obviously enough, when we went to Aragon, all of us had looked back at Daytona and uh, it was a lot of fun to watch that race because you didn't really know what to expect. And obviously... With the Ducati run out of fuel, we didn't really see their full potential other than we knew that they were going to be on the podium, basically. So I think it was really interesting to see how that was going to go. And now we wait and see where the where the tea falls for, for the rest of it. But I, I'm, I'm excited for Supersport. I think it's probably the best rider lineup I've ever seen in the championship. This is my seventh year working full-time in the paddock. And I remember whenever I started commentating, like, Supersport was a test of your endurance. You were just like... <laughs> You were just getting <laughs> yeah. through that race. Whereas yeah. now you're actually, you know, I can't wait for the super sport race. We've got, you know, 10 riders. They're all world-class riders. We've got good teams, good bikes. So I'm excited for how the season's going to play out for us. All right, before we let you roll out, let's talk MotoGP real quick. Jason, Steve English, what are your predictions for this weekend? They are in what, Portugal? Man, how do you predict MotoGP these days? It's impossible. <laughs> I, exactly. You know, we were talking earlier and there was something brought up that I was like, you know, I saw that I saw that Miller's already said that he doesn't mind a move back to Pramac if that was to happen. It's it's because um, you were talking about the Ducati family and all that, and then Miller puts in a great ride, obviously at at, at Coda and so on. Um, boy, predict the unpredictable. I, I've gotten to the point now, I think, Steve, where you know when we look at World Superbike, we can kind of map out who the racing is going to be insanely good. It's going to be incredible, but we know it's going to kind of be the same guys. Right now, MotoGP. Every weekend, I find myself thinking to myself, "Well, that's a podium that I would have never picked." You know, when you look at from Doha to 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 Indonesia, uh, and then obviously Argentina, with you, you just sit there and you go, "That's a podium I wouldn't have picked." And every weekend, it's it's just one of those things. I think that this is a this is a track that Marquez came back to last year, didn't he? I think after his uh, after his big injury, he ended up sixth. Honda's. Uh, the ride he put in at, at Texas shows that he's healthy and talking about champions who are still very, very hungry. It seems he is. I think it's going to be a big, these next two rounds are going to be big for, for Yamaha too with Quartararo, more importantly. Um, championship is so close. So, I, I, I mean, there's just so much that you could talk about with MotoGP. You could do a two-hour long podcast on it. Well, I think for me, what I'm excited to see is what happens with Juan Mir because... He's been really solid all the way through this season. The only rider that's finished inside the top six all the way through. And I have him in my fantasy team. But I do too. Him as my silver rider. So <laughs> am I going to take a chance on this being the weekend where he goes really well? I think that it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you talk about the unpredictability, JP, as being a good thing. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit on the opposite side. And it's strange because for years, whenever we had the, the aliens and all you were looking for, was something that came out of the norm. Now, now it's it, it's it's too random for me in MotoGP. I, like I love it. I love sitting down to a race and not knowing what's going to happen. But I'm also kind of there. Like you know, what? I spent ten years working in MotoGP and World Superbikes, and you know, I've spent all this time 
learning all, a lot of little intricate details, this, that, and the other. And then you look at a MotoGP race, and you're there. It was all for nothing because anything can happen in it. Anything can and happen right now. Yeah. You know, you you look at it like one week you've got an, an Oliveira without meaning to pick on him is the shining example of this because he can win any weekend. We're going to port him out. If he wins this one, you're not going to be the least bit surprised. But if he goes out the following week and finishes 15th, you're not going to be surprised either. And oh. I think that that's yeah, where like MotoGP, all the changes they've made have been really good. But it's also where I, I just like to see it where, like I, I love looking at, at World Superbikes because last year we had the best racing I've ever seen between two championship contenders. And the reason it was special was because every week it was for the win and they were killing each other. Whereas in MotoGP, we saw Quattararo won the championship because he was just super consistent and he was able to get his podiums. Yeah, and he and took no a big points could. chunk. When everybody was on their back foot at the beginning yeah. of last season, he got a huge chunk of corn. And then he was, yeah, just managing it basically in a way the rest of the, the late part of the season. And, like, and, and don't get me wrong, I think that we've seen a few riders able to be really impressive so far this year because, like I said, Mir inside the top six all the time, really consistent, still hasn't had a podium, but he's constantly grinding. Uh, Bastianini, uh, after the Sepang test, we were talking about it on, on our podcast, and uh, I was saying that uh, from some of the Moto2 riders that I had talked to that had gone up against Bastia, they all raved about him, and they said that you're going to be shocked by how good this guy is. And I think it's, it's easy to forget that he won a world championship. You know, people, people are talking about him as if he came from nowhere. You know, this is a guy that won an ultra-competitive Moto2 championship. He's now on a much better bike than what he was on in the past. He's got a team that's, that's, that's structured well. You know, I think it's one of those situations where it's all fallen into place from these early rounds. But can he keep that momentum going? And that's what's going to be really key because he's shown something that we haven't really seen from like Jorge Martin coming into the season was the rider. We were all thinking, Oh, well he's going to do great things with the Pramac. He's going to be Ducati's future star. Whereas now you're looking at it that Bastianini's stepped up. Yeah. But is and, Bastianini on the old bike though? He's on the yeah. old bike, isn't he? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean that, that's one of the things I look at too. It's like, well, if Bastianini ends up putting himself in a position halfway through the season where he's leading this championship and all that kind of stuff, is Ducati going to engineer themselves right out of his bike working well? And that's the thing that that I tend to see lately from Ducati is they they kind of go on the other extreme side, say, of BMW and World Superbike in the sense that they're just like, innovate, 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 innovate. And I think that you've heard it from their factory team where they're like, eh. Well, can I ask you a question about Ducati in MotoGP, right? We know that Gigi Jolinia is an incredible engineer. We know that he's been integral in turning Ducati's fortunes around. But at what point does Delinia get the blame for Ducati having the best bike on the grid and not getting the job done? Couldn't agree and, with you more. Yep. You know, he's going to blame... JP, you already mentioned about Jack Miller and Pramac. He's yep. going to blame Jack Miller. Yep. And fair enough, if, if, if after his time with Factory Ducati, where Jack hasn't done a good enough job, and he has been inconsistent, Jack would admit that as well. But if he hasn't done a good enough job to warrant keeping the Ducati seat, then they'll throw in another rider and a year later, they'll put him in the same boat. And I think that at a certain point, Delinia needs to, again, a bit like what I was saying about Gerloff, take responsibility. And it's his job to win the championship. 
and and he places or Ducati placed too much emphasis on the mistakes of riders and we're looking at a championship that's so like I said earlier on so random right now that I think I think at a certain point Delinia has to take responsibility as well and he never he always seems to get a pass and I'm as guilty as that as everyone else like at the end of the day I'm a journalist I'm still writing about MotoGP I've still got you know I'm still involved with our podcast on the MotoGP side of things and it's easy to give him a pass because the big story is always the riders but at a certain point Ducati need to need to be held under the microscope microscope as an organization and like you said Greg it's that culture of always innovating it's impressive I'm an engineer I love that but also as you know as, as a racer is that what what's needed and you know Pecco's done a really good job the first round he said I'm not here to be a test rider I'm here to win races just I'm using a bike I know and that's where I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with you Caddy. Hey, Steve, there's something that you said there that is really interesting. If a crew chief has success with a rider, one rider, it seems like that crew chief is there forever at that point. Where if a rider has success with the crew chief and then the results don't come, the rider always goes. And it's really an interesting thing that you bring that up because even the fact that you, I thought it was great that Bagnai said, listen, I'm not a test rider. I think it's gotten to the point, to Greg's point, that Ducati just keeps on wanting to push the envelope and get better, 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 which I think that's what everybody wants to do. But why would you want to go ride for a factory Ducati at this point? Pramac and even team that Bastianini's on, it's it's satellite teams that now satellite teams can win in MotoGP, which is incredible, and I know where the equipment's coming from, but to go ride for the factory Ducati team, and what's really funny to me is, and it's always going to be like this, Bastianini wins, you always see guys in red shirts down there, you know, taking whatever credit they may or may not have. But what would be, other than the paycheck, the allure to go to a factory team that does seem to struggle? I mean, you look at Dovey all those years. Dovey had plenty of opportunities to win the championship. So whose fault was it at that stage? What what do you who do you blame? How do you blame? He always got second. He's got to see those Ducatis go by him now when he's riding that the Yamaha, and he's just got to be thinking, I, I, I have my chance. Um, so I think it's really interesting that you bring up the Gigi thing because you don't ever hear anybody going, well, Ducatis maybe overdone it here a little bit. Who do we blame, right? Um, you got two riders that you think can win. The inconsistency of Jack kind of tells me again that the team structure itself, somewhere in there is falling, falling, falling down. They can't produce the same machine each week for him to be consistent yeah because i think especially with someone like jack i think whenever he first came into MotoGP, gp you could lay an awful lot of blame on him because yep. he was inconsistent he was he wasn't fit he didn't look like a MotoGP gp rider and then halfway through that season crutchlow basically whipped him into shape and he was yeah it was it was cal that got him out training really hard got him fit lost a lot of weight got himself ready and from that point onwards miller's been able to do a really good job of of, of doing all the things that you should do to be a world-class rider. But whenever there's all the inconsistencies, there's, there's certain elements that you need to look at and say, are we doing what we need to do for this rider? And Correct. you mentioned about, uh, about crew chiefs keeping their jobs and you know, re- regardless of who comes in and the success they have. I find it really interesting. Obviously, we had Johnny earlier on. Johnny works with Power Reba. And yep. Reba was... He was a 500 Grand Prix rider. He was a super sport race winner. You know, Reba was a, a really good rider. And when you look at the best crew chiefs in World Superbikes, I think by and large, 
you're looking at ex-racers or at least ultra competitive people that are putting everything in like Phil Maron was never a racer but Phil was a, a really good amateur footballer here in Ireland and he, he, he was able to, to get himself to a certain level of competition when you look at Andrew Pish double world champion when you look yep. down the list there's a lot of guys that fit that mould and I think when you look at Reba what's interesting with him is he's worked with Loris Baz he worked with won the scores and then he's worked with Johnny as well three very different personalities at three very different points in their career as well and he was able to figure a way to make the most for all of those riders and he was able to figure a way to allow them to be successful a team has to be structured to allow the rider to be successful because guess what none of us care that Ducati's the best bike on the grid when Yamaha wins the world championship all that we see is that was a missed opportunity and and you're 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 programmed to then say Peko Bagnaia missed his opportunity or Andrea Davizioso missed his opportunity as opposed to thinking Davi was up against Mark Marquez the best rider we've ever seen and he came off second best was it three times so there's no shame in that but you're also conditioned to think Ducati are going to make a change because they need someone that can beat Mark and I think that at a go on ahead Greg no, I was going to say, like, in, in terms of, like, your conditioning, that the, the topic that you're bringing up, you know, when you grew up in racing or, you know, you come from the 90s, even in the 2000s, before the electronic electronics era, there were riders that you knew had talent that could outride the machine that they were given. They could outride the tires. They could, they could perform above and beyond. And I think that the, so that becomes the mindset. Like, we just blame the rider. We see the rider. They're performing. They're the one who get the results. It's their number on the bike, all that kind of stuff. But the bottom line is, it, there's been a fundamental shift in the last probably 10 years and it just keeps getting worse that that it's really more on the people behind the computer or the crew chiefs or whatever that are going to prepare these motorcycles and help the rider make those decisions on well yeah you need this amount of engine braking you need this tire choice all this kind of stuff and and it's becoming these motorcycles jason you probably know this better than anyone else because you've got to ride gagne's bike you know in the last couple of months but it seems like the rider influence on the motorcycle has become less than it was, say, in the 90s or the early 2000s and more dependent on engineers and data. Well, Steve hit it on the head. The reason why I think that you see so many ex-riders like Pity and Pire um, and, and others. I mean, even in BSB, I know that there's a few guys there that were very world caliber riders that are crew chiefing. I think... You still have to be able to not just let a computer screen run exactly what you're trying to do. There has to be a feel between a rider and their crew chief, um, head technician, whatever you want to call them, where you can be relatable. Um, because not everything on a computer screen um, is, is necessarily... You, you can look at us three and you're going to see three different looks at a computer screen that are going to be different. If you take three of the top world riders, they're all going to do things a little bit different than the next. I never understood the fact that you get these teams, hire these riders, and the teams don't want to change the bikes so much. Oh, no, this is what works. How do you know that that's what works? If this, you've, you've thought enough of this guy to hire him, he's coming in to complain about something or wants to change something, and he can't because the team already has a preset idea of this is what works on our motorcycle. I think a lot of the times you see it where a crew chief has a philosophy for what they feel the bike should do without realizing that the biggest thing that makes a difference is the rider because they're the ones that can manipulate things. They're the ones that can move their body in a certain way that it doesn't show on the data that they've made a transition, 
and suddenly that everything about that bike is different now because they lap by lap make those changes and i think that's where a lot of the time there isn't that credit given or or whatever you want to whatever way you want to look at it and i think that's where it becomes really tough because it is now at the point of diminishing returns because everything's so close it's not like it was 20 years ago where there was say five seconds separating the grid now there's a second separating the motor gp grid it's crazy and you know there's there's no margin for error now so the crew chief wants to make their changes to make it where everything's optimized for however they want it whereas the rider is trying to figure it for themselves and, and it's not it's not an easy time for riders it's not an easy time for engineers but it's also the cards that they're dealt this is the way it is right now so everyone needs to find a way to make it without question ben spees isn't ben spees without tom houseworth tom houseworth was there the entire time when he was at yosh he got him to a world superbike championship and race win in MotoGP. And, you know, that consistency is not only from like trusting the rider and stuff. It's the crew chief is also, you know, if you have a really good one, they're also a psychiatrist, right? Or a psychologist. I mean, understanding how to motivate the rider, what to shield that rider from in terms of the politics of it, the getting the resources to work in their favor. There's a lot of stuff involved in that. But look, guys, we're nearly two hours into this podcast. Yeah. I have to edit this thing, and I'm, I'm so over having to edit two hours of freaking podcast. I think the information here has been great. Steve, I know that you have to go do another podcast as it is. So unless there's anything pressing, JP, I think we let Steve roll, and then we finish this thing up. What do you think? Now, first off, Steve, thanks for taking your time and doing with us. Greg's actually going to send you a check. I hope you've been getting the other ones that, you know, when you've come on. Craig sends checks to everybody. So, um, no, thanks, mate, for doing it. And um, looking forward to getting over and, and seeing you this year. And you said you might be getting over here, too. So that's good as well. Yeah? Yeah, I'm still still trying to figure out getting over. But uh, I'm quite keen to get over and uh, see the States again. It's been a few years that with the pandemic. We've missed out on a lot of trips. And I think it'd be really, yeah. really fun to get back. Um, I think just before I finish up, uh, Greg, you said it's two hours there. This feels very easy compared to uh, the Le Mans stints I was having to do four hours. <laughs> uh, and I, I got to say, it was it, it was actually a lot of fun to cover that race. I didn't know what to expect because I had never done an endurance race before. And you know, you're used to the intensity that comes from a 35-minute superbike race where you're having yeah, to, sprint racing, to, really, yeah. to, to bring all of that. I actually really enjoyed being able to to look at things on a on a bigger perspective, slow things down, go into a little bit more detail about things. I thought I thought it was a lot of fun and I actually really enjoyed covering a bit of endurance racing as something a little bit different. And you know You got the flavor of what car racing like NASCAR and stuff, you know, that's that's the no. pace that they run. By the way, I do want to say this, uh Bradley Smith get get well. He yeah, absolutely. Horrific, horrific crash at the twenty four hour. Yeah, I did get a message from Brad saying obviously very battered from it but uh that uh he's just going to do what he can obviously to get himself fit but that was a scary crash at the start of the race and i think it's 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 quite interesting obviously whenever you look at all the steps that are made to make racing safer um and then something like this happens and it's going to be interesting to see what the ramifications of it for are because obviously you want to still see a start like that because it's unique but then you also want to ask yourself like what's it really adding to things and I think that uh, yeah, I don't know. Lamont starts, yeah. You know, like for for me, because it's a championship, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not directly involved with on a week in week out basis. I looked at it and I thought like this just seemed unnecessary. And and we also saw where the the obviously it's an important 
part of endurance racing and jumping on the bike and making it go and making a good start and all these kind of things. But we missed out on, on the yard being in, co- in competition for most of the race because they also had, had a similar incident to what happened to Smith. And it took them a long time to start the race. And then suddenly they were, I don't know, 30 seconds off the back straight away, 40 seconds off the back, trying to make that time back and come through, I don't know, 52 bikes or whatever it was. It's so hard. It's, you know, Endurance it, is such a... It's the Le Mans 24-hour as a fan. I just look at it like there's races that you got to go to, maybe see a MotoGP in Italy... You know, you you, you 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 maybe go to the Isle of Man, but I just think that the Lamont 24-hour, and Bradley even said it in one of his posts, he's never seen the energy like that at the, before the start of a race. And it's like when you're actually there and you're seeing it and you're hearing it, it's the build-up to the 24-hours. I, I got to do like seven of them. So, I, yeah, I was, it was really a cool place. My, my only experience really was, was endurance at Spa when I did the BMW yeah, Boxer Cup. Crazy. And the... the, the Back then, I mean, the energy was insane. People, there were some people there so drunk they didn't even realize a motorcycle race was going. France also. Can I tell you one funny story actually? Because I didn't get a chance to say this on air because I wasn't doing the first stint. But obviously enough, whenever you're thrown in at the deep end for a race like this, you're always just in in touch with as many different riders as you can to get their perspective on things. So I was talking to riders that were in the race, riders that had had raced it in the past, and uh, riders that had gone and done Suzuka. So I was chatting to you know, as many World SBK riders as I could. And, and I was asking Alex Lowe's about the start because he had done the start for uh, for the Suzuki, Suzuki eight hours when he was racing for Yosh. And I was asking him, you know, like, you know, what, what's it like to have the start? And uh, he was saying that, you know, it's it's quite quite a challenge because you're on the grid in your leathers a long time before the start of the race. Obviously, Suzuki is a bit different weather conditions to what you have at uh, Le Mans. And, you know, he said that, you know, you're sitting there, you're in your gear, you're doing everything you can to keep cool, but realistically, you're just absolutely sweating buckets. And, you, you know, it's an hour before the race and you're out there on the grid. And he said that uh, the team manager for Yosh came over to him at one stage in the build up to the race the night before and, and was explaining the start procedure to him. And he said that this meeting went on for an hour because everything had to be debriefed with the Japanese team. Everything needed to be fully decided. Everything needed to be perfectly clear for the rider. And uh, at the end of the, the meeting, Alex was asked, you know, OK, do you, do you understand now about the start and what to do? And he said, OK, so I stand on one side of the road. I run as fast as I can to the bike. I jump on the bike and then I go as fast as I can for the first hour. And that was it. And he was there like, so, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's an hour to understand that this is what you have to do. It probably was a little bit easier to understand for him than, he, than uh, the Japanese guys thought. But whenever we started the race and you looked at the pressure that all these guys were under, because it is pressure. You know, there's four rounds this year in the endurance championship. There's three twenty-four hours, and you know any mistake in that first five seconds is going to cost you potentially the race. And you looked at the at the grid, and you saw the guys under so much pressure. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens as a result of that crash with Brad, because that was a very avoidable crash in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's funny because you have a guy now in Bradley that's very. Uh, you know, kind of a mainstream guy. He's in. He's been involved in it, and it's it's one of those things, Steve, where I've seen it before, but it might not be with a top level guy. So it maybe gets brushed aside. But I think with everything evolving and things, there are probably safer ways to start that race or any of those races. It's just a tradition, right? That's the big thing that tradition, that we fight tradition. with. That the thing that we fight with so much in motorsports is tradition. So 
you know, um, yeah, as, as long as he's, as long as he's good, um, that, that'd be great. I, I'm really happy for Greg Black, you know, Gintley, I know, and, and Simeon and things, but Greg Black was a teammate of mine when he was young, when he was really, really young over there. So it's been really fun for me to see him do as well as he has and, you know, be winning all these races. Yeah. All right, Steve, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast and, and giving us your insight. Really appreciate it. And I sent you instructions as to hang up, but don't close the page. My fear is Johnny closed the page and I won't be able to get his file. So that ought to be interesting. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll do my best just to press the hang up button and uh, leave my phone sitting there for as long as possible, Greg, and then you just message me whenever you're sorted and then I can use my phone again. <laughs> yeah, that'll, that'll be good. All right. Thank you. Because awesome. right now Thanks, I'm looking Stevie. at your file. It's saying 0% of your stuff is uploaded. So I'm going to lose my mind. That's but, awesome. Uh, yeah, it's great. All right. All Thanks, right, Steve. Appreciate See it. You later. See you later. Good luck this weekend. Later. Cheers, we'll guys. We'll be watching. Bye. See you, Stevie. All right, later. All right, JP. Um, wow. What a, what a podcast. So Crazy. Let's talk real quickly about Moto America, Road Atlanta this weekend. If anyone's listening this deep into the podcast, I know a couple guys are, maybe girls. But um, what do you think? Road Atlanta this I mean, weekend, premier I'm class. S- I'm excited to get there. We've just been, we had Supersport at Daytona. We had Superbike at Coda. Now we're going to get to see all of our other classes. We saw Twins Cup. Obviously, we oh, saw it's Baggers. Packed. And it's, it's going to be a really, really busy weekend. Looks like the weather's going to be fantastic. What are you kidding uh, me? 79 on Friday, perfect. sunny. 79 Saturday, 80 degrees on Sunday. Perfect. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. So, um, I'm, you know, I mean, it just seems like we could probably be doing four podcasts a week right now with as much racing as we have. Because, Greg, we got. MotoGP in Portimao. We got Aston World Superbike. It's just going to be another crazy weekend along with Supercross. We've just got all this craziness. Uh, racing is full on right now. Um, I forget where Supercross is going to be this week, Greg. Uh, is They're going to be Fox Bro, son. They're going to be Fox yeah, Bro. Be, that's right. I yeah, did know Gillette that. Stadium. Let's go. Yep, yep. Patriots. So, you know, but for us, um, you know, I was texting Chuck a little bit yesterday and Wayne, both rainy, and I said, you know, it's just nice that it looks like we're going to get our season off um, with good weather down there in Atlanta and, and kind of, even though we've been able to, we've been lucky enough to go to a couple other spots. So yeah, it was, it was good. It was great at Chuckwalla all weekend too, G-Dub. The weather out there was perfect. Um, we had some wind, but it's, everybody's just excited about the race seasons that are going on right now. Yep. We hope you come and join us. Uh, definitely come out to the races. It's a great time to come on out. Nice outdoor activity. Going to be beautiful weather. There's going to be Medallia Superbike. There's going to be Super Sport, Junior Cup, Twins Cup. Uh, baggers will be there as well as Hooligans. It's going to be a full. Did I miss a, did I miss a class? I think, I, no, I think you got it. I think you got I think it. You got and, it. you know, I'm interested to see who's going to come out of our Junior Cup program this year. You know, like we've got some guys that have been there. We don't have any champions that are there anymore. They're all gone. So we have it's no like champions. We only have two riders out of 18 that are registered that even won races before. And that so. would be, I'm trying to think who it'd be. It'd be, is Gus Rodeo? Is Gus he in Rodeo this? and um, Cody and Wyman. The, Cody Wyman. Yeah. And then we got Joe Lamandry coming back. I saw him on the sheet and Kayla and Owen Williams. It's going to be interesting to see who is going to step up there um, as well as super sport. You know, we lost our, our last two champions from Supersport are gone. So, you know, we've got that going. How's Gagne going to bounce back? What's what's Petrucci going to think of Atlanta? There's just so many key storylines that we'll get into next week. Um, it, it runs the risk of being another long podcast next week with all the racing that's going on. <laughs> There's no doubt, but, but we'll do it between us. No Correct. guests next week because we have so much to rip through. But 
Thank you again to Jonathan Ray, who was here an hour or over an hour ago, hour and 20 minutes ago, he left. Um, and, uh, and obviously, uh, Steve English for everything that he does for the podcast as well. Appreciate yep, it. Yep, absolutely. So that's it. End of the podcast. Jason, as normal, you have the last word in saying goodbye as you, when are you, when are you uh, well, I guess before I let you go, yeah. when are you getting to Atlanta? Wednesday Thursday. or Thursday? Thursday. You going to golf? Or you no, doing? I can't. I'm, I'm, I'm on the DL. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you're hobbling. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, you're I'm hobbling around. So I'm in the- um, And then the sec- second thing is, what are you doing after? You're heading home, so we'll be able to do a podcast with you at Sunday. home. Sunday. It's going to be nice. I'm going to have a little bit of time off now um, in the sense that don't really have you know much coaching going on. Uh, the end of the season right now is kind of happening at Chuckwalla because of- uh, yeah, It's going to get hot in Chuckwalla, heat. man. It'll, so, month, um, it'll be 120 degrees. It will be. So between just- healing up a little bit and um, not really having anything in the immediate future. I got something at Button Willow on May 9th with Let's Ride Track Days, which will be fun. Um, but other than that, I'm, I'm, I got a little time off. It's going to be nice. It's good, it's good to heal up. And, um, you know, racing is such, is such full swing right now. I'm planning on going over to, uh, to some races overseas. And uh, my mom's got to go to England for, for um, a wedding. So, Kind of, kind of mix all that in there at the same time. So, yeah, my season's going to be full. It's going to be fun, but the next couple, uh, next couple of weeks will be good after we get done with Atlanta. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we look forward to having you listen next week. Yeah, get some chips, some salsa, whatever your favorite drink is, and enjoy all the race, all the races this weekend because it's going to be a full packed weekend. And uh, we'll see you on TV, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>